Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community. The St. Lawrence River community and North Country lost a passionate environmental advocate with the passing of Ken Didi in the summer of 2018. A longtime Grindstone Island resident, Ken had an unwavering affinity for river area organizations and was a principal founder of the Thousand Islands Land Trust based in Clayton, New York. He served as president of the Land Trust for 16 years and a board member for 33 years. Ken also maintained a charitable fund at the Northern New York Community Foundation that benefited river area programs for many years. Ken was a great storyteller. A few weeks before his death in August of 2018, he reflected on his fondest memories with his good friend, Ted Mascot. The following is a series of stories that capture the personalities and spirit of the many North Country people that taken together, we have a fabric of caring, giving, and preserving. We hope you enjoy listening to this conversation with Ken Didi. I thought we might start by your telling us how you first came to the river, you and your family. Well, I was a teenager, I think probably. And what year would that have been? I, I, either 50 or 51. I never did look it up. My brother was in the Army at the time, serving in Germany during the Korean War. And my parents, who both worked, would get annual vacations. And my aunt, my mother's sister, and her husband had come up to the Thousand Islands the previous year, just on a tour, you know, to see the Thousand Islands, like they would see Niagara Falls or any other tourist attraction. And they fell in love with it and they talked my parents into coming up. So sight unseen, my parents rented a cottage in Spicer's Bay, Cal's Cottages. They're still owned by the same family. Not the same people, obviously, but the same family that owned them in the 50s and 40s. And my aunt, uncle, and grandmother rented the cottage next door. And the two women, my aunt and mother, were just ardent fishermen. Hmm. And you got a boat with the cottage and a motor. And they'd go out and go fishing every day. And we always ate what we caught. No catch and release. It was catch and eat. And we never strayed too far. I mean, crossing, there was no seaway at the time. There was a channel, obviously. But one never thought to cross that because that was sort of forbidden territory in a small boat. We came back every year for as, as renters and tourists. As renters for a week, two weeks, then ultimately three weeks until uh, 1962 or one or two, there was a hiatus due to finances. And in that same year, I started looking for property. In 1964, as just a serendipitous event, I found a man who had vast acreage on Grindstone Island. By vast, I mean he probably had six or 700 acres. In addition to the 300 he owned on his own island, picked and called him sight unseen, referred to him by a realtor and told him I was interested in buying a piece of property, that it was a school teacher. And he said, well, yes, he does have some property for sale, which I came to find out was totally untrue. But he invited me over to have lunch with him so he could sniff me out. In that era, early 50s, there were still a number of people who lived in almost the grand style. He had a boatman, he had a maid, he had a cook. So he sent his boatman over to pick me up and take me to his island on Picton. We had lunch. I don't recall his wife being there at the time. It was probably in the spring during Easter week, which I would be off, I was a teacher at the time, and I would be off in recess. He had a river chart on the wall after lunch. He showed me the chart and said, well, I own all of this on Grindstone Island. And this was the foot of the island? Yeah. It was the foot. He bought almost the whole foot, except for State Park, which was purchased about 1890 mm. by the state of New York. I think the state bought Niagara Falls, and then they bought... I think uh, it was the second state Canoe park. Point. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of historic. They bought basically a point and a sliver of land that went down the foot of Grindstone. And then Heinemann owned the land behind that, which consisted of an abandoned farm owned by 
family named Delaney, whose uh, descendants are still floating around. But most of the land was forested, rocky outcropping, suitable only perhaps for logging, certainly not for farming. There was another farm that was owned by the Fitter family that Heinemann did not own. But he owned the whole bulk of the foot of the island. And if you look at the island, you see that the island's constricted towards the east end by two bays, Russo Bay and Delaney Bay, that are both class one wetlands, and they almost meet. Yes. And were they to meet, there would be two islands. But there's a isthmus that connects them. There's also a bridge that connects them, a little bit north of the isthmus, the land bridge. I, I think the bridge probably was put in by Emery, who... Emery of... Um, C.G. Emery, who owned a very... Man who became very wealthy, he Cigarettes. bought a patent on automatic cigarette manufacture. People used to roll your own until Emery came along. He bought the patent on a cigarette making machine and formed a partnership with one of the Dukes of Duke University fame and so on. And Duke Power, it's yes, big, big name right. mm -hmm. in the Carolinas, and they formed American Tobacco Company. So he had a lot of money, and Emery did, but I digress there. Heinemann pointed out the... Yeah, what was uh, Heinemann's full name? Uh, Bernard, I don't know his middle name, Bernard Heinemann. He's the owner of Yeah, H-E-I-N-E-M-A-N, right. He was a textile broker in Manhattan in the garment area. He had married into a substantial old New York family. He married Lucy Morgenthau, which Ooh. is a pretty famous mm -hmm. banking family who is also related to Barbara Tuckman. Lucy Morgenthau was Barbara Tuckman's first cousin. Barbara Tuckman is a renowned author of The Guns of August and Proud Tower and a number of other books. So a very interesting family. They had purchased their island, Picton in 32, which is a whole other story, I think 32. But anyway, he, he had subsequently, I think at a tax sale, purchased the foot of grindstone. And he had given a piece away here and there, and he leased a piece. But to my knowledge, he had never sold a piece before. So where this realtor, who was a friend of Heinemann's, got the idea that he was selling property, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it, Unfortunately. Was, it was to my benefit. What also was to my benefit, he had just decided to give four acres away to his boatman as a gift. And so that, I guess, got him into the mindset of getting rid of some of this property. Now, four acres, and then I bought four acres. The name of the uh, boatman was? Jerome Brabaugh, B-R-A-B-A-N-T, part of a big family in Clayton, and I'm still quite friendly with him. And he has one son still alive who visits me here in the, the which rehab center. Yeah. Peter Brabaugh Peter, is Peter. the oldest, and he's the only surviving son. Of it's, that branch. Yes, of that branch. There are five other Brabaws. Well, anyway, getting back to Heinemann, he said, I may have anything on Grindstone, but not on Picton. He's never going to sell anything on Picton. So I was familiar with the property because we had fished it, although we never went ashore because, you know, it's sure. private property. There weren't many houses there at all. I think on the whole foot of Grindstone, there is one, two, three, five camps encompassing several miles yes. of shoreline and 600 acres of area, six, 700 acres of area. So I was very familiar with fishing, by fishing along the shore. So I pointed right away to a point that I liked. Which, which had a nice little the, bay. Yeah, which had a nice cove, little island in front of it deep water. I didn't know what I was doing though. It was just pretty. I never thought of winter ice taking docks out or anything like that. It was just a very pretty area. So he said, okay, we had a handshake. Did you have a price? $5,000, which probably was way too much for the value of the land at that time. But as I said, I didn't know what I was doing. But people who lived on the island, as summer people, just several years before, were able to buy up many 80, 100, 150 acre farms for 3,000 as the island depopulated. Maybe I should explain that. But that was interior land. No, it came no? with waterfront oh, and a did. house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for 2,500, 2,800 mm -hmm. in, in 1958, 1960, you could get a 100, 120 acre farm, arable land, hard. I mean, the soil's not great, but with waterfront and a house, you know, not insulated or anything. Mm -hmm. These were scabbed together houses. This was the, the 1960s. Part. The late 50s for sure. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not so certain about the 60s, but the late 50s for and sure. And your purchase was in? My purchase was actually in 64, but I think the handshake might have been in 62, something like that. Did you have the funds? No, the- I didn't have the funds. <laughs> <laughs> we had some financial reversals, my family did, my parents, and that changed situations slightly. And my brother got married. and That so always that, changes That it. always changes it. So... That explains the delay between the handshake the delay, and the right. actual. And, uh, yes. And so I called him up and said, I can't pay for it now. And he said, well, you know, I've given you my word and you're a person of honor and I know you'll pay it. So that was it. So a couple of years later, it must have been 1964 or 65. At that time, when you were a teacher, you could elect either two methods of pay. You could elect to get pay on a 10-month basis, which was an annual salary, but they paid it over 10 months. Or you could get it elected to be paid over a 12-month basis. Again, same salary, but mm-hmm. the school district would retain for people who can't budget properly, a portion of your salary, and then give you a big check in June, the end of June. I don't know if they still do that. Well, anyway, I deposited my big check, 2000 whatever it was, and my brothers, and I immediately sent him off his check for $5,000, and wouldn't you know the damn thing bounces? <gasps> yeah. Oh, terrible. Yeah, so I was mortified, because I got the notification first, and it said for uncollected funds. Well, at that time, I was very naive. Even though I was older, I didn't have that much experience. I didn't know what uncollected funds were. What the bank does when you can't cash a check. As most people know now, they don't credit it to your account immediately unless you have a big deposit elsewhere in the same bank. And so they call those funds deposited but uncollected. In most instances, they will not pay out on them. Well, anyway, I called him up and explained it and apologized and all that. And he understood. So eventually the checks cleared. They were all governmental checks. And he got paid and we got the property. And then we spent our vacations, which at that time now were three weeks. We'd had dogs at the time too, but we'd all go over the family. We'd have a picnic on the property and, you know, get any bocce, if people still know what they are, a little portable grill, and grill something up, let the dogs mm-hmm. roam around. Yeah, nice. Just pull it up on a beach because we had a small boat with an outboard, and you could do that without endangering the motor or anything. And then in 69, after having worked three jobs for several years, and... Which were what? Well, I was a teacher full-time. I was president of my union, which didn't pay squat, but it was like a full-time job. And matter of fact, didn't pay anything. Well, I guess squat is anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's nothing. Uh, I worked at a large discount department store at the time called S. Klein's on the Square. Oh, yeah. And I worked in the nursery, and I worked that for a year and a half. Matter of fact, I worked so much I was getting overtime on top of teaching. Oh, yeah. And my brother worked hard, but by that time he started to have kids, so he always worked two or three jobs, too, as did I. And I also got a, a job with the township after having been politically active, and there was a turnover, and I was given a position of, well, it was, it's unglamorous title called beach manager, but what it was... I was in charge of eight or nine. What town is this? The town of Islip on Long Island, which is from Bay Shore to Bayport, maybe 300,000 residents. Well, yeah, that's Long Island townships are big. So we had two two public beaches on the ocean, and I supervised the ferry services, all the lifeguards, all the kids who picked up dirt and trash. We call the SPs. You can fill in the blank there. Second word being picker. Then... I had uh, two swimming pools to supervise and five what they call bay beaches. So I had about 130 lifeguards and another 80 employees. It's a big job. Yeah, it was, but it was part-time, but it was a per diem job, but it was big. I kept that for two years, and with all that extra cash coming in, I felt secure in getting a $9,000 mortgage to build the house. On the island. On the island. And characteristic of those days, well, back up, I didn't know what I was, as I said, I didn't know. If I knew then what I knew now, you know that whole story. But I didn't know what I was doing. I got a book at a garden center, 30 summer homes and their plans. So the book cost five bucks. It was published by Sunset. They had all oh, different yeah. decks and buy a book on anything. Yes, I purchased them also. Yeah, oh, yeah, I yeah. bought quite a few. Yeah. 
So I picked out a house that was modest, which it is, and it was a house that designed so that you could add modules, which I never did. And so what I learned is, after having the house been built, it's very difficult to do anything with a house that's perfectly square, which is what my original house was. Just very difficult to ascribe rooms or do anything like that. Well, anyway, I went to Mr. Heineman, the owner from whom I bought the property, and said, yeah, I need a builder. And he says, I have just the man for you. Well, who he picked was Pete Brabaugh, who was his boatman's oldest son, who was an industrial arts teacher and who was uh, good at carpentry, but he had never built a damn house before. You know? <laughs> but uh, in any case, I met with Pete, and we hit it off very well, and with his family and everybody, and his cousins and his parents. I showed him the plans, and he said, okay, he'll build it this summer. We shook hands, never had a written contract ever between us, and that's what I said, that's the way things used to be done. Just a handshake, said, do you want any money? No, I'll let you know when I need money. So he set up a charge account for me at the local lumberyard, which is now out of business. And here again, they never did credit checks or anything. It was just everybody assumed you'd pay your bill. And that's how we built the house, on a handshake. And it was ready that August. It's an interesting story, I guess. I had uh, running the beaches. I was over there every day. I was somewhere every night. I was a supervisor. Back on Long Island. It's a long way from 170 the, people. You long know, way from the Thousand Islands. Yeah, but I had an assistant, but I couldn't mess around. I had, you had a supervisor. They were all young people, and everybody needs supervision anyway. People do what you inspect, not what you expect frequently. So I was over there one July 4th weekend because I partied a little too. And at the two ocean beaches, I had use of a house, which wasn't bad, which I gave to the chief lifeguard or beach manager as the case may be uh, in each case. One was a duplex, so the chief lifeguard got one side and the beach manager got the other. And I would stay there and uh, the supervisor of the town who was quite wealthy and had a quite a nice size, well, we won't call it a yacht, but it was probably 50 footer. Mm. And he had come over to the marina. I didn't mention I also supervised two marinas. Mm and with the dock masters and so on. And he invited me and a close friend who was staying with me for the weekend to have drinks on his ship, on his boat, which we did. And he served clams on the half shell. And about a month later, my house is almost ready to be built. Be occupied I, or? Be occupied, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. yeah, be occupied, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm loading all the stuff up, you know, first trip, everything you need, you know, iron, hibachi. Sure, you're going uh, to an island, so you're going to an island for the first time. Dishes, you no, name it. No close neighbors. No neighbors, yeah, yeah, no close those neighbors. Days. Yeah, we didn't have neighbors for years. For years, even the Brabaws, who were neighbors, didn't come over except on weekends. Anyway, we had an old station wagon and also three dogs and a bird. Huh. Cockatiel, two parents, three dogs, a bird. And a lifelong friend of my mother's was going up to spend two or three weeks just to help us get settled. And uh, we were supposed to leave Saturday. Saturday morning, comes Wednesday, I get sick, which is unusual for me. I'm you know, sort of a bull. And my fever goes up to like 104, 105. Serious. Yeah, very serious. Doctor came to the house, even. This is in 69. He says, I don't know, you must have a virus or something. So just drink plenty of fluids and rest. So the fever broke Friday night. I said, okay, we're ready to go Saturday. So we call up Lillian, pack the dog, pack the bird packed the car. Lillian spends the night out in Bayport, loaded into this car. I mean, it is packed to the gills. I mean, just <laughs> your knees are up to your neck, you know? And I can only drive as far as the Tappan Zee Bridge. And I am, I think it was Tappan Zee, and I'm just wiped out. And I said to my mother, I can't drive anymore. So she took over, she was tough, and she drove the rest of the way up to Clayton. Now, you gotta bear in mind, there's no throughway. Mm, Route 17, how do you do it? You took nine, 
1909. And then you got to Hawthorne Circle, I think, and crossed over Bear Mountain Bridge, you crossed over to the other side, and then you'd go up five, up to Albany, and then you'd take five, and at least I don't think there was a throughway at that time. There certainly wasn't an 81, but I know many, many times that I went up there, the throughway hadn't been built yet. The throughway might have been built in 69, so I might be wrong there. But anyway, we did get up there, and we got to Pete's house, the builder, in the village of Clayton. And I said to him, please hire somebody to empty the car. I can't do it. I was just wiped out. No, 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 no. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. So he had all the women, everybody, loaded his boat. Now the boat looks like a car did with the bird cage. And <laughs> this, this is a big bird. It's a cockatiel. And the dogs, of course, they don't know what's going on. But as long as they're with us, they don't care. I think we were down to two dogs at the time. And yeah, one of the dogs had previously had died the previous year. And off we go to the island. We get to the island. And pursuant to my instructions, they had not completed the inside because I did not I was fearful of running out of money. And I thought, well, I used the rest of my vacation time to fit it, put up the walls, put down the flooring. I'm used to do it yourself. I can do it. I could do all that stuff myself at the time. So the only room that was finished was the bathroom. That had a curtain on it. Hmm. An, old, an, old, an old drape. Yeah. yeah. No sink, no stove, nothing. We had a cooler full of frozen food. And here are my parents, who are city people, right? And the dogs are basically suburban dogs. And here we are in the middle of the wilderness. And I feel terrible. So I go into the bathroom. What I neglected to mention is they were just finishing up the electricity and the telephone. So there were a bunch of linemen there having a beer and telephone telephone workers, just screwing around, having a beer and whatever, having lunch. And I go to urinate, I notice my urine is brown. Ooh. Yeah. Then I look in the mirror, there was a mirror and a toilet and a sink. And my cornea is yellow. I don't need a doctor to diagnose I had hepatitis. Ooh. So I call the doctor up. He said, you got to come home right away. I said, I can barely move. Well, there's nothing I can do from here. Just go to a hospital. So he was sort of abrupt. And that's what I did. They took me to the hospital. River Hospital? It was, no, it was E.J. Noble at the time. Oh, E.J. Noble, yeah. And in they Alex had, Bay. Since they didn't know what type of hepatitis I had, they had to isolate me. So I was put in the prison wing, prison cell that had A lot of us bars. would like to have yeah. seen that. Kid. It had bars on the window. <laughs> it was really pretty dreadful. So I was, I was there for three weeks, totally out of it. And Three weeks? Yeah, yeah. This is your vacation. Yeah, well, I was I was out of work till mid October. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, I was had lost probably forty pounds. I was I had hepatitis B. The one the clams were contaminated, and I called the Department of Health in Suffolk County, and they said they had a number of cases reported. I think it's B. Hepatitis B. It's not the one that you get sexually transmitted. It's the foodborne. Nor is it C, which is the other one. So anyway, there my parents were. Everybody leaves, and they're on an island with the dogs. Fortunately, they had enough dog food. All they have is a cooler. And you're 20 miles away in a hospital. I was 20 miles away in a hospital across the river. Yeah, so they made it. And your brother was there? My brother was, was working. He always worked. So your parents were alone? They were alone with Lillian, yeah. Oh, yeah, the lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. My father could get along with anybody. My mother was tough as nails. So for the first couple of days, they ate food. Thank God we brought the hibachi up with charcoal, and they had frozen food in the cooler. So they ate off that for a number of days. And finally, I got out after three weeks or two and a half weeks. And about September 1st, I started trying to finish the house. Yeah. And to get the last bunch of mortgage money. And the banker, again, things are different then. I said, no, we have to, we can't release the rest of the money unless you finish the interior of the house. So I just worked like a dog. We all work like a what period of time is this? You're out of the hospital? This is September. <clears throat> so you go out, you leave the hospital and start finishing the... September 69, mm -hmm. yeah. And I took my mother shopping one time. My father used to like to drink once in a while. And I left him with a chore to nail down subflooring quarter-inch hollowed core over which I was going to put lanolin.
linoleum. So I told him, Dad, you put nail every six inches, all right? Laid out a roller, you know, all six inches, all around the end, the middle, everywhere. So we were in town. When you know, it blows half a gale, and we can't get back to the island safely until the wind drops, because it was a very small boat. But we finally got back, and my father is just rip-roaring drunk, and, and you could see the progression of nails. He'd start out six inches, then five inches, then three inches, till finally, as he was into his third six-pack, he had nailed every single inch. <laughs> so we have one part of the house flooring there that's all solid metal because he had put the, the nails about an inch apart. But he had enough nails. He had enough yeah, nails. Yeah. He used to buy it by a big bag, yeah, by a pound, yeah. anyway. Oh, that's so cool. that was opening the house the first time. Oh. It was very interesting. Yeah. One of my favorite stories is how the land trust, the Thousand Islands Land Trust, got started and your sort of accidental role in that process. Yeah, 1980. There was a couple on Grindstone who had bought a farm, having moved off of Murray Isle. They wanted more room. And they bought a abandoned farm with beautiful arts and crafts house which is still there. This is it, near the, Rock, towards the head. Towards the head, it's called Rock Ledge. It's sort of across from Bartlett Point, a little west, and it's a big red wraparound porch. Very um, distinctive. Well, anyway, Allison was a conservationist. She came from an old Quaker family in Philadelphia called Stokes, who were pretty prominent anti-war, I shouldn't say anti-war, pacifists in World War II. Paul came from a large family, I think from New England somewhere, but Paul was one of these PhD MDs, and he worked for the National Institute of Health, among other groups, and did very original research on the human brain, left side, right side, women's brain, male brain, and uh, apparently very well-known. What would he be, a neurologist, maybe? Or yes. uh, very, yes. very well-known in his field. And very lovely, lovely people. I think they had five kids. They also had a lovely home in Potomac, Maryland, which I think was part of Silver Springs at one time. It got cut off. Yes, further out. separate, yeah. <clears throat> and they had, I guess what you'd call an estate, but I don't, you know, it wasn't a yeah. In those estate. days, Potomac was out in the country. Yeah, and they had no like longer, 15 but... acres. Yeah. And she loved the woods, Allison. They loved the woods. I shouldn't say she. And they contacted the Maryland Nature Conservancy about preserving their woods in, in Maryland. In Potomac. Mm -hmm. Right. And they ultimately put an easement on the property. Conservation easement. Conservation easement to protect the 15 acres so it wouldn't be subdivided. If you know the area now, I went down there. It's sort of horrifying. They have these mega mansions on one-acre lots or two-acre lots. and it's. I mean, the houses are beautiful, but my gosh. You could connect them with a little bridge and walk from house to house to house, you know? <laughs> well, Allison didn't want that to happen, nor did Paul. And at the same time, there was a state agency called the St. Lawrence Eastern Ontario Commission that operated at a water town that the state had set up. And the purpose of the agency was to look into land planning and to try to conserve open space and farmland in northern New York. There was also one set up in Tug Hill, which is still exists. exists. And they the Tug had... Hill yeah, but Sleok went by the boards. But they had a hearing in Clayton, which which I attended. And so we went to this lecture on what, how to conserve land and what conservation easements were. I don't remember the year. It had to have been 81, 82. But at that meeting of maybe 20, 25 people, Allison got up and spoke about her conservation Alice, easement. Allison McLean. McLean. And how they had just placed a conservation easement on their farm called Rock Ledge on Grindstone. About 130-acre farm, mostly uh, hayfield, rough pasture, some woodlot. A lot of woodlot, actually. And how she accomplished that is she went to the 
the Maryland Nature Conservancy and said, well, now that we have the easement on our house, we want to put an easement on my property on Grindstone Island. Well, the Nature Conservancy of Maryland has nothing to do with New York. And I think they came to make her understand that they couldn't possibly, they'd work with her, but they couldn't possibly accept the conservation easement. First, it wasn't in their mission and it was out of state. But they put her in contact with a large conservation organization that's still around called the Trust for Public Land. And they concentrate on, for the most part, on like preserving the Adirondack State Park. They'll buy up a 5,000 acre lumber company. Or holdings, larger. Or they're, larger. Yeah, they're into big. And hold it for two, three, four years until, in this case, New York State is able to appropriate the funds and then they sell it to the state. And then they move on to the next project. Well, the Nature Conservancy of Maryland got the Trust for Public Land interested in accepting the conservation easement on Rock Ledge. Allison and Paul, in the meantime, talked one of their neighbors, a woman named Josephine Murray, who was a pediatric psychiatrist who owned an almost adjacent farm called Mid River Farm, which was historic. Which was right at the head of Grindstone. Right at the head of Grindstone Island. I say it's historic because the original house was built by a prominent family named Bolin. Bolin. B O H L E N probably 1904 or 5, somewhere in there. And the Bolins didn't last too long, but they, they did build the house to last for the winter. They put in a coal-burning furnace. and Who was the architect? I don't know the name. But Whitmore and Merrill, maybe? Yeah, I, but they're the same architects who built the uh, Grand Central Terminal and the New York Yacht Club, which are two of New York's most famous buildings. And the Bolins, an interesting family, they are descended through a branch from the Krupp family, which most people in the United States, when they think of Krupps, they think of coffee makers and coffee grinders and my microwaves and appliances. How do you spell Krupp? K-R-U-P-P. I think of German when I think of Krupp. That's the one. And they were the big armaments manufacturer in the Franco-Prussian War in World War I and to an Alfred Krupp who turned this family business into this huge armaments manufacturer. It was early, his name was Alfred Bolin, von Halbach Bolin. Mm. And he contracted to marry Krupp's only daughter, Bertha. He was also had the appropriate lineage with the von. And, but the deal was he had to change his name to Krupp. So Alfred von Bolin, Halbach Bolin became Alfred von Bolin, Halbach Bolin Krupp. <laughs> so when they, uh, the, there's a very famous book out called The Arms of Krupp. Mm-hmm. Good read, too. And he's prominently mentioned in there. Well, it's his grandnephew, or great-grandnephew, who built the house on Grindstone. And famous American diplomat Chip Bolin was actually born at that house. And Chip Bolin was ambassador, I think, to France and also to Russia. I think so, But too. he was an aide to Franklin Roosevelt, and he was at Yalta. Very well-known diplomat, if you follow American history. But he was actually born there. But as I said, the Bolins got off the island. They sold it to Josephine Murray's grandmother, which is another interesting family. The Murrays, in part, are descended from John Murray, Lord Dunmore, who was the last colonial governor of the state of Virginia. And he started a war between the British and the Native Americans, gratuitously, just to grab land, called Lord Dunmore's War. So if you study American history, you've got to read about that, early American history. So what he evolved with him, when the revolution started, he got run out on a rail and had to flee Virginia, and he went back to uh, England. But his descendants are the Murrays on Grindstone. Josephine ultimately inherited half of the estate and with the historic house and a couple of other houses and she bought out her cousins and after years she lived in a shack lived very modestly this woman wealthy but lived very modestly and she sold off the big house to another 
family and kept all the land. But prior to that, she had put an easement on the property at the behest of Allison McLean and Paul McLean. So now there were two easements on Grindstone, totaling maybe 300 plus acres of almost contiguous farmland, a lot of waterfront, and owned by the Trust for Public Land, which is based in New York City. Now, one of the thing about- Easements held, yeah, were held by. Yeah. What easements are, they're restrictions on property. And usually they go in perpetuity, which means forever. And easements are very alien to people. They get hard to get their minds around what an easement is. But anytime you've driven down a rural area and you see lighting poles, you know, electric poles going across property, the only reason the poles are there is because the lighting company was able to get an easement on the property, which is usually is a permanent right to cross the property. For the specific purpose. For the specific purpose of providing electricity to this farmer and probably to the next 10 farmers. So these easements are permanent and it is recorded as a deed of ownership. A rights of way right. also? Another? Rights of way is another type of easement. Yeah. Yeah, but you see, the most common explanation of power lines, they're all either on fee-owned, which means you own the property, but a lot of them are just on easement property. Uh, I say just, it's still an encumbrance. Real estate is like, when you buy real estate, you're not just buying a piece of land, you're buying what's under it, you're also buying what's above it. So if there are diamond mines under it, unless they've been given away or sold off, or leased, you own the diamond mines. If there's oil under it, you own the oil. You can lease the air above your head to have them build a skyscraper and still own the property, which happens a lot in New York City. New York City, a lot of the property Rockefeller's by one Rockef agency. Rockefeller right. Center is a great example, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then Columbia University. Columbia used to, anyway, <clears> own <throat> the, the land, and you had any number of owners owning the buildings. But what I'm saying is property rights can be partitioned off, and there are some positive stories. You can collect royalties for 100 years if you have an oil well, or if your house is built above an abandoned coal mine, and the mine collapses, and you lose the house. It's tough darts. You know, a sinkhole forms. That happens all the time in Pennsylvania. It's just tough darts. It's a real serious problem. So that's what easements are. They're just property rights that are partitioned off. For the most part, conservation easements are negative rights. Uh, by that, it doesn't say I can build a windmill. It says I can prohibit a windmill from being built. Or it or doesn't you, mean I can subdivide the land. It's I can't subdivide the land. So or not, you can only subdivide it. You can subdivide it in certain so, ways. Yeah, so many times. Yeah, every easement is different. There are no two that I'm aware of. Well, there may be a couple <clears throat> that, are, that are the same. Yeah. So anyway, the Trust for Public Land had these two easements. And part of the responsibility, I was pointing out the complexity of easements, is you own a property right if you own this deed. And the only way you can enforce your property right is by inspecting it. On a regular? On a regular basis. But anyway, they, being the trust of public land, didn't want to supervise these easements, but they have to be supervised because they took this obligation on. So they, they didn't want to conduct those right, regular. annual or regular periodic inspections 400 miles away. So I guess they got a hold of the only conservation organization that was in operation at the time. This would be 1984, and that was Save the River. They called Save the River. They said, listen, we have to see Grindstone Island because we have these conservation easements and we're a conservation organization. I was on the board of Save the River, as was a woman named Camilla Smith. So they actually called Camilla, I think. Camilla called me because she didn't have a boat, even though she lived on the island. Uh, she grew up in an era when the boatman took you around. If you wanted to go from A to B, the boatman would take you. Parents didn't think it was proper for you to be driving a boat. The boatman didn't certainly want you driving the boat because you'd run it on a rock and he'd have to repair it. So everybody had the same goal there, keep the kids away from the boat. Well, we weren't kids, but that's basically how she grew up. Obviously, she knows how to drive a boat now and all that. But anyway, she calls me up, says, I got these two people coming up from New York City that want to go around Grindstone and want to take a look at Alice 
Allison's property and Josephine's property. So I said, okay, I'll pick you up. So we packed a lunch and I picked up Mike and Barbara Mead, these friends of mine from downstate, and we picked up Camilla and then the two field reps, young people from the Trust for Public Land, a male, Richard McDermott, I don't know where he is now, and a female named Rose Harvey, who went on to do many things, but most recently she's Commissioner of Parks. That's the short title. It has a long title, Parks, Recreation, or Cultural and, Affairs. For and the historic, state historic, historic. Historic Preservation for the state of New York. So we picked them up in town and drove around Grindstone, which is six and a half miles long. Drove around in a boat. So I drove around six and a half miles long, two and a half miles wide. We circumnavigated the island, pointed out the two parcels. I don't remember going on the parcel. We might have gone on to one of them. And all they did was talk about formal land trust, 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 which Camilla, Mike, and I decided to do. And I met with Josephine, and I met with Allison and Paul, and uh, they agreed to go on a board. And another person, Franny Purcell, who's now Franny Mallory, was Franny Beadle, her maiden name, and Patty Lachamme was a, a local person. Mm. And in 1985, the Trust for Public Land did all the necessary paperwork to mm. write a constitution, and legal work. constitution, bylaws. And then we first had to file as a corporation, as a not-for-profit corporation with the state of New York. Then you file for a 501c3 status with the federal government, which they did. And following that, the Trust for Public Land transferred the easements to the Thousand Island Land Trust. Now, whoever's listening to this, remember easements, I said, are deeds. They're deeded rights. So they can be sold, they can be given away, they can be bequeathed, they can be donated, they can be transferred. It's a deed. It's, it's a property right. Just like you'd buy oil well retention rights. And that's how... Or a house. Or a house. And that's how, basically, the land trust was started. Yeah. Yeah. And we were a Grindstone Island outfit with just Grindstone Island people. But you selected a name that was much larger than Grindstone. Encompassed right. a lot. More. Right. I was a little... The obvious name to call the organization is Thousand Islands Land Trust, but I didn't like the acronym. I don't know why. I must have had a bigger vision at the time than just Grindstone. Yeah, yeah. But the acronym for Thousand Islands Land Trust is TILT, and I never did like that. But that's fallen to common parlance now, and nobody looks at it negatively. You know. Yeah. So that's how it formed, and uh, Trust Public Land did all the work. Well, how did you become the president? head of it? President. Well, I did all the work, fundamentally, for the first. I was president secretary, even though we had a you secretary and treasurer. You all the work, so... I did all the work, and everybody let me. Yeah. yeah. It was just five of us initially, and then we added Frank Call, who was another buddy from Save the River. Everything's related. Yeah. And he's and Murray Isle. He, he's Murray Isle, which is an adjacent island, and a very respected man. He's He's gone now, too. And so he was the first off-island board member. And then we started branching out. I think Carol Monroe from Bluff might have been either the next or one after that. And Trudy Feidelson from Thousand Island Park, which is on Wellesley Island, was early board member. Alan Newell from Hammond was an early board member. Rick Tagg? Rick Tagg from Westminster Park. Wellesley was an early board member. I, I probably left one or two out, but we we quickly got off, in terms of the board, got off Grindstone to give us a better visibility. But the core membership is still Clayton-based. I mean, we have a river-wide membership of seven, 800 people, but it's uh, Clayton forms a big nucleus, not only of Tilt, but of most of the nonprofits, except for very regional ones. And they're headquartered there, too. And we're headquartered in Clayton, as are most of the other major nonprofits. Yeah. You have the Antique Boat Museum, you have the Arts Center, you have the Performing Arts Center, the Opera House. I mean, those are, those are the biggies. Save the River. And they're all Clayton-based. People ask me, well, did you have a grand vision? No, I didn't have any grand vision. When we first started the Land Trust, we had a board that had a commonality of interest. We were all from the same island, even though we might have lived miles apart and were in areas that were not accessible to each other because of the terrain. You still had that commonality and bond. So there was a great deal of collegial sentiment. And our treasurer, Allison, I mean, it can just she just sit there and say, well, you just go ahead and you do whatever you want. We'll approve it. <laughs> you've done you've done well so far. And that's pretty much the way we operated. 
although I try to really try not to be too autocratic, but you know, founders of organizations, even though we had other founders, I guess I was the principal founder, tend to be autocratic and take uh, ownership and possession uh, of an organization, ultimately, frequently, to the detriment of the organization. Yes, that's until, the classic pattern of correct. Yeah. of great entrepreneurs. We escape that, that. There's no... There's no we it, escape that thanks, well, to my temperament, but more importantly, thanks to the board. But that's another story. Well, so, maybe, well maybe that's a good story. Well, all right. Yeah, after short, about... Short, Yeah, after about 13 years, I mean, we grew basically like a family because I had a premise to sort of, I don't know whether it's to de-emphasize the corporate nature or whether it was to emphasize the familial nature of the board, but I felt that, and I learned this technique, I guess, elsewhere, helping to build a union, you have to bring people together and you have to get them together in different environments so that they get to know each other and they get to see the positive aspects and a of each other's personality. And they have a shared experience base. And have a shared experience. So what we did from the get-go is when we did have meetings, we'd always have it at someone's home. And pretty much we do it to this day, 32 years later. We'd always serve refreshments so that there was some sort of collation at the end and people could just unwind. And that's evolved into, we spread it a little differently. We still meet in people's homes, maybe half the time or better than half the time. And the other part of the time, our executive director did a very wise thing. We meet in local restaurant venues to bring business into the community and so that the businesses get to know us and our mission and people get to know us even though we're parts of the community there's still when you're talking about any type of organization there's always that standoffishness and alienation so meeting in people's homes having some sort of collation at the end the third thing i stressed which again we still do maybe not frequently enough is i would provide the board with different experiences field trip and some were crazy i mean we'd get small boats and go up a creek in small boats i mean these are with elderly people that we sometimes maybe not carry in a boat they wouldn't let you dare dare touch them they'll get in by themselves but hay rides going around the interior of islands and walking tours so every easement that I negotiated and I negotiated a lot of the early ones and every acquisition we made we would have field trips to these places with I would see that lunch was provided so we'd have these picnic lunches and it's very difficult to get into an argument with somebody over a dinner table you know I know they talk about like at Thanksgiving the ugly uncle walking in causing a ruckus but when you think about it it's really somebody sat down and had dinner with four or five times the lunch was very difficult to you try to find compromises, and that's basically how we still run the land trust. Many presidents later, I think eight presidents later, everybody is bought into the same concept. Sometimes people want to operate more, quote, efficiently, unquote, but uh, after a couple of efficient meetings, people realize they've lost something, and they go back to the old way of more deliberation, more talk, and more mm -hmm. socialization. How did you agree or oh, plan, so anyway, plan your well, departure I wanted to, from I wanted the to, I wanted to paint the picture. <clears throat> of mm -hmm. the collegiality that existed on the board and the trust level uh, among the, there were no politics. There still are no politics and we have a 17 member board now. There's still no politics. There's no factions, no regional factions, no ethnic, no factions well, at all. Easily could be regional factions, couldn't Could, they? but there aren't. It's a natural. Yep, yep, they just aren't. The environment, right. with the island separate, yeah. Well, at the time, nothing occurs in a vacuum. We had an executive director who was uh, very competent and very strong, and she and I began to have a few differences here and there in policy. And so she would have been more happy than unhappy if I were no longer president, because in our model, the president is the CEO, not the executive director. Might be a little unusual, but that's the way it is. The board controls the organization, the CEO, the executive director runs it, all right? And I hope that's the way it uh, stays. You always have to have board check of the employee.
employees. Employees will always try to get out from under it. The board should always try to stay on top of it. So she put together lunch with, I don't think it was the executive committee, it was just three or four board members, and they expressed their concern to me. What I might add was a valid concern that if something were to happen to me, or for whatever reason I decided I want to be president, there's going to be one big gaping hole. And they're not trying to push me out the door, but they really wanted me to give some consideration to a succession. And I guess surprisingly, I, you know, I just totally agreed with them. Because, it's unusual, very yeah, unusual. Well, I guess, but I had a lot going on in my life too. And of course I love the land trust, but they weren't pushing me out the door. And I had recommended somebody to be president and his name is Bud Ames, very respected, very competent guy who, I might add, is the only person who served as president of the three biggest organizations, Land Trust, Save the River, and the Antique Boat Museum. Served as president of each of, of all those. three, right. Uh, in, at different times. At different times, yeah. So Bud wasn't at the meeting, but he was on the board. He wasn't at this lunch. Mm -hmm. And I had- Who was at the lunch? Do you remember? Rhett Foster, maybe? No. No. I know for sure Bud and Rhett weren't mm -hmm. because their names both came up. I brought them both up as uh, potential as president. No, it was Sissy, the executive director, who did not have a vote. Me, Nancy Breslin, who was chairman of the nominating committee, Carol Monroe, for sure. Can't remember, maybe John Tucker mm -hmm. from K. Vincent. So anyway, in that year, and I don't know what year it was, I approached Bud Ames and asked him if he would consider it. And I told him what the concerns were of the board. And I shared those concerns and he agreed. So I approached Bud and Bud agreed to serve. And he served for two years. I wish I had a grand design, but one started to evolve, obviously. When you get two farms on grindstone, you want a third and a fourth and a fifth and so on. So the next really big push, I pushed and the board pushed to acquire Potter's Beach. Oh, that's a story. Yeah, which is just north of Mid River Farm. On grindstone. On, not contiguous to it. There's an no. old farm in between. But it's also... But it's uh, an old farm. Describe the beach. As far as I know, it's the only naturally occurring sand beach on the American side of the river. And it's large. And it's large. You have to understand these islands are made out of granite for the most part. I think there's some limestone, but there's a granite shield that runs through. But this beach faces northwest, west, and the prevailing winds hit it pretty badly. Crescent. Coming from it's, the southwest. The shape is a crescent. It's a crescent Beautiful crescent. Beach. And what it does is, it's almost a steady run in terms of the wind from Kingston, which is probably 15 miles away, or from Lake Ontario, I should say, right into Potter's Beach. So over the eons, it's piled up tons of sand. So you have this very beautiful sandy beach with eccentric glacial boulders here and there. And that came on the market and I investigated it. The entire beach came on the well, way? It was purported to be the entire beach, mm. and this I investigated it in probably 1985 or six, five. Right at the beginning of the right at the beginning of the formation. And of I went with the talk to the realtor, and they said, "Well, it's sort of a fluky thing." I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Well, this woman came in. She listed the beach for sale, but she doesn't own it. She only owns half interest." The original owner, going back, I'd say original. There were other owners. Was a doctor from Canada named Orlando Potter. When he died, he either died without a will or or he neglected to mention this farm in his will. So when that happens, any property becomes the owners of the heirs in proportion to the relationship to the decedent. In other words, I own a piece of property, I have two kids, I die without a will, they inherit 50% each. But which 50%? Nobody knows. It's called an undivided interest. Well, move forward three generations, and we had, I think it was, 14 or 15 owners of this property. All within? Right. Of a beach that might be 1,000 feet, 
or more crescent shape. No structures on it anymore. There had been farmhouses. Then there was a back woodlot of 13 acres. Some of it had been parceled off. There was an additional 200 acre woodlot that went right across the island. So I said, I don't know anything about this. Half interest, undivided. We're not going to get involved with it. So I explained it to the board and they all agreed, well, prudent not to do anything. Although, again, being not solely grindstone now, but grindstone centric, this beach, which was getting more and more popular as boating became more and more popular with the public, became very important as a public venue, even though it's privately owned. And it's still, that might add, is privately owned. The Land Trust is a private organization. So about a year goes by and the daughter of this woman, whose name was Ruth George, who had the 50% undivided interest, calls me up. Her name is Sally Boss and she lives on Grindstone and in Cape Vincent. And she introduces herself to me. I meet with her and she said, look, my family, my mother, who's elderly, and I and my children want this beach to be preserved for the public. It's always been used by the Grindstone Islanders. Now off-Islanders are using it, but we just want it to remain in public venue. Isn't there anything you can do? So I had a lawyer, I think, look up who owns the rest of it. We found these other people. I think I might have spoken to a couple of them. They wanted to keep it in the public venue as well, and they would be willing to sell their interest. Concomitant with this, one of the cousins, distant, he had 7% interest. He had two siblings, and he bought their interest out. Now he had 21% interest. He files a suit against Ruth George and the other cousins. Ruth George is the mother of Sally? Ruth George is the mother of Sally Boss, mm -hmm. who she owns 50% interest. So he files a suit against his cousins. It's called the suit for partition. He wants the courts to ascribe a value to the beach and do something, but give everybody their fair share of money. Well, courts don't want anything to do with a family squabble. They just don't. Never did. So what does the judge do? He decrees, as far as I can recall, that in a year it'll be sold at public auction unless the family can come to an agreement to sell it before that. I further check with attorneys and determine that if we buy the 50% interest, we buy into the lawsuit, which is sure. a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So I went to our board and explained the whole thing as best I could in late terms. Now, by this time, I'm halfway to becoming a, an attorney, and I don't remember what we paid, but it was in excess of 100000 for the half interest, maybe 130. We had it in the bank, or we started to raise it through a campaign we called A Decade and Beyond. All right, well, that gives you the date. It must have been 1995, because we had been around a decade, 1994, 1995. The wonderful thing about our board, although they act very prudently, and they're very prudent with the donor money, and certainly we all pay our own personal expenses, even when we go to Florida for meetings, we pay the expenses of the staff. Although they're very prudent, they do take risks, depending upon what the reward would be. And there is a risk attendant to this. I mean, we could get stuck in litigation for years with $130,000 being tied up in court. But anyway, we bought Sally's mother's half interest. In the middle of this, the mother dies, further complicating it, but not too badly because it was held in a trust and immediately went to Sally. And as trustee, Sally completed it. I also dealt with Sally's son, Mark. Almost everything we decided was on a handshake basis. Very honorable dealings. Both of us, I was too, they were. Then, within a very short order, we bought the interest of a woman named Janet Ennis, who lives on Grindstone. I forget what her maiden name was, but we bought her interest and her brother's interest. And I think that gave us another 14%. Brother is Rex? No, oh. that was her husband. Oh, that was her husband. Yeah. No, Janice would have been Ennis's maiden name. I don't know, but she was pretty well known in Watertown. She used to sell popcorn in the arcade. <laughs> yeah. She was sort of like the popcorn lady, but I can't recall what her maiden name was. But she's a descendant of this farmer, this uh, doctor, Orlando Potter. So now we had about 64% interest. Now I'm starting to breathe easier. And then when it came down just to the final negotiations, we only had the cousin who had 21, and then he had another cousin who was siding with him to try to get more money. So that gave him 24%. So by that time, then we must have owned 76% in fee. Court case is still out there. So I sat down with that fellow, not his cousin, but I sat down with him, the 21% owner, and I basically 
basically said, you know, I've had years of negotiating experience. I basically said, you do realize that if this goes to court, it's going to be auctioned off, and there's no telling what it's going to go for. And we'll see who outbids whom. It might go for $50,000. And by the way, if you don't sell us your property, you're going to lose a whopping tax deduction because part of this whole construct was based upon buying the property at a value that was lower than the appraised value. So if we're buying the beach, let's say, for $300,000 and it's appraised at five, what that turns into, if it's constructed properly and legally in line with state and federal law, the people get $300,000 for the beach. They pay whatever capital gains they have to pay. But since its value was $500,000, that $200,000 difference that they've given is up. viewed by the government as a charitable donation. Since it was a charitable organization that Correct. acquired it. And why the government does this, in the case of the beach, in the case of a forest, they want public space without direct use of governmental funds. Very important concept. Very important concept. Similarly, this museum wants to buy a Van Gogh. It's worth $40 million. And let's say Ted owns the Van Gogh. Well, he wants some money to put his great-grandchildren through college and grandchildren through college. But $40 million is out of the question. He's not a pig. $20 million is enough. He'll sell his Van Gogh to the museum and take a $20 million tax write-off. It's a little more complicated than I'm explaining it. And obviously, it has to be above board. Yeah. Otherwise, somebody goes to jail if they're caught yeah. messing around with it. So anyway, the people who are holding back saw the light in as much as they would wind up with much less money they, under any circumstances if it went to public auction. If it went to public auction. So they came to their senses, and we signed the, the deed purchasing it. At the time, we had a board member, again, another early on board member, who was added right at the beginning, Susie Smith, again, recruited from Save the River. She was a Canadian, but her advocate, her job was fundraiser. So she put together a fundraising plan for the Land Trust. I don't know, we had maybe $25,000, $50,000 in the bank through the generosity of some people who had given us $5,000 donations, which back in 1985, to me, was all the money in the world. But we had a couple of those experiences where people just gratuitously would give us $5,000 a year. It just absolutely blew my mind that they do that. Well, anyway, Susie made two presentations to the board. Again, the board is not flaming liberals. These are pretty conservative people, but they were risk takers. And the one presentation was to raise $500,000, and the other one was to raise a million. And we voted. We discussed it in terms of what is plausible, what is feasible, and we voted on the million. And we indeed did raise through a variety of methods the million dollars. That included outright donations over time. It included grants, like we got a grant from the state of New York to help buy Potter's Beach. In the same era, I got a grant. I say I got, I wrote the grant. I authored it for the purchase of the remainder of the Heinemann land on at the foot of Grindstone and another grant to purchase the Russo farm. It's all happened within a two, three-year period. So those were all part of the million dollar. Mm -hmm. The foot of Grindstone was an $80,000 grant. The Russo farm was 50, and the Potter's Beach one, I think, was about 80. I think Sissy wrote that one. And so they're Sissy, all part Sissy of the Dan. million. Sissy Danforth, who was our executive director about eight or 10 years, very effective, lovely, competent woman. And so within short order, we added those three, three big three what, big grindstone parcels. Yeah. Was Zenda Farms was also part of the decade. Well, the name of the campaign was Decade and Beyond, correct? The name of the part is Decade and Beyond, and Sissy Danforth, Beetle, mentioned that because Franny, who was one of the founders, was Sissy's sister. Sissy's deceased, that's how I said was. She had a quick wit, and you know, you have a timeline in terms of raising money, and we're getting behind the timeline. So she used to refer to it to me as the Decade and Behind. But anyway, one of our targets was to get an easement, again, protective covenant, on a farm that is immediately to the west of the Clayton Village border. It begins at Bartlett Point Road and then goes west for quite a few hundred yards, thousand yards, no, well, maybe half, well, third of a mile 
West, and was owned by a man who inherited it named John McFarland. Originally consisted Zender Farms, consisted of one, two, three, four, five farms, I think. Maybe seven. Maybe seven, but... And uh, seven, around 700 acres originally. Yeah. Gentleman uh, Farmer put it yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. So, Carol Monroe, again, another very early board member, and I take out John, the owner of the farm, and his wife, Lois Jean Hungerford. I mention that because it's an old Clayton name. Lois Jean Hungerford, Hungerford McFarland. To dinner at a nice restaurant in Chameau. Oh, the Borden thing? The Borden thing, right. That Borden thing. And the purpose of the dinner was to ask John the $10,000 towards the decade and beyond, not to get sent a farm. Sissy wanted to put easements to protect this wonderful, glorious hayfield, which has as a backdrop, 10 had as its backdrop. 10, I think it was dilapidated steel, James Way barns, and then behind that is a hill, which heavily forested. Yeah, you're right, there were 10, there yeah. were, there, and there still are 10. Heavily forested, yeah. woodlot, mixed, they, yeah, mixed hardwood. Is the backdrop of these. As the backdrop. It's it's just like a wall hanging, but it was spooky because these barns were spread out over quite a few hundred feet, 800 feet maybe, mm -hmm. and they were dirty brown, streaked. From rust. And they're set way back the very end of the hayfield, and it was sort of spooky, and it's private property, so you didn't venture in to see what it was. But it was quite clearly an abandoned farm, but it was sort of like as bad as rural New York pretty much can get. That's the way it sort of looked. Although rural New York can be very beautiful, it can get pretty bad too. So she wanted to put an easement on the hayfield to protect the open space, because it is right at the edge of town. I mean, you reach the end of Zenda Farms, and it says, welcome to Clayton. Well, Carol and I take John and Lois Jean out to dinner. Carol's sitting across from me, and no, I guess Carol's sitting next to me. Lois Jean was across from me. And we're knocking down the wine and feeling pretty good. And I'm trying to build up courage to ask him for 10 grand. I mean, once you get the knack of it, you sort of lose the scared part of asking for money. The worst that can happen, people say no. Absolutely worst that can happen is say people say no. But very frequently they say yes. But in any type of negotiation, you've got to listen very carefully and try to assess what is it the other people want that you're trying to get something from. Very, two very important things. But most importantly, you've got to listen. But anyway, I'm leading up to the point, telling them what the land trust is doing. We bought these properties. Potters Beach. We're trying to endow them. We're looking for more property to protect open space and so on and so forth. Lois Jean says, you do accept property as donations, don't you? And I said, yes, we do, Lois Jean, and easements and so on. So I go back to John, who has the control of the purse strings, and go through my spiel, continue, and Lois Jean interrupts again. Says, but you do accept property, don't you? And I said, yes, we do. And now I'm getting sort of dismissive of her, because I don't know what the heck she's talking about. So John says, oh, you guys, you're all the same. You're always after money. And he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $1,000 a year for five years. And I said, well, that's very generous. Thank you. Would you consider giving us $2,000 a year for five years? You fundraisers are all the same. You always have too much money. No, no, no. That's what I give in any fund drive. I give $1,000 a year for five years. I said, well, John, that's very generous and thank you very much. And I feel somewhat of a, a failure after $10,000 up front. So $5,000 over five years, nothing to sneeze at. So there's a pause, pour out more wine. And he says, well, you know, Sissy's been after us to give you the farm, which she wasn't. She was after an easement, but easements are so obscure to people they don't understand the difference. And he says, so I might as well give you the damn farm. And that's what Lois Jean was pointing towards, because she had primed the pump. She wanted the land trust to own the farm. Well, she'd been prior to the dinner. Very, yeah, worked <coughs> pushing over, John. Pushing did. John heavily, and always did, and subsequently did as she well. She was a Clayton. She'd Clayton born native. Raised, yeah. She knew what she was doing. Well, so did he. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, but one might think I would jump for joy and do a tap dance on the table, but I didn't. My heart sank, almost hit the granite underneath the floor. Reason being, he's giving us this farm. He's giving us 10 derelict falling down barns. Now, I already had the experience 
buying a farm with a barn and a beautiful barn. On grindstone? Went on grindstone, on the Russia farm. When I went to inspect it, one wall had imploded. Frost had just kicked in this pile of rubble. And I said, this damn, where are we going to get the money to fix this? Damn, things going to come down. And Sissy was going through a phase, the executive director at that time, that we shouldn't own any buildings. So she got me to agree, I was president, to sell the barn this is one on grindstone. grindstone because I was afraid of the liability. And if the barn fell in, people would say, you let the barn fell in, it's historic. And if you didn't fix it up, well, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. So all I saw was a lose-lose situation. So I agreed to sell the barn. Well, P.S., fast forward 25 years, the barn's still there. Pile of rubble's still here. Hasn't moved an inch. Well, anyway, and I said, now I'm going to get 10 of these things. And I just said, I don't know how I'm going to go back to the board. This is all going through my mind. And I'm sure Carol's too. How are we going to go back to the board? We'll come in and ask them for 10,000. We get five and a liability of a half a million. So then he says, yeah, and you can sell off the waterfront. And I sort of drew back and said, waterfront? This waterfront? He says, yeah, it's pretty much the whole hill. I don't know. There must be 800, 900 feet of waterfront. I said, John, that's worth about a million bucks. He says, yeah, that's what I figure. So I just said to myself, Holy shit, that's a home run. That's the, that's the brass ring on the merry-go-round. So it took about two years to consummate the deal. And indeed, we did sell off the waterfront, but not for a million, because we put restrictive covenants on it, which limited development. And we also put... So it a, couldn't be subdivided up into 100 per, It can be left. subdivided, but not into 100. Look, for we're a, very mindful. We're taking a lot of acreage off the tax rolls. Now, granted, it's ag... We, the land trust, land through trust. these... Granted, it's ag... Uh, when you own it. Yeah, it's it's ag acreage. So in terms of tax raising ability, it's sort of nil. But to take that much waterfront off has a visible impact. So we couldn't in good conscience do that. So we sold it subject to conservation easements. I think we got about $500,000 for it, a little less. And immediately thereafter, we started, I don't want to say restoring the buildings, but we started rehabbing them and had them painted. And it was like night and day. It was yeah, the spectacular. Before, the before, the before and, and after pictures are spectacular. They're, they're startling. So now, today, we have the the original farm where the buildings are with the hill as a backdrop that's protected. Uh, a lot of the waterfront is protected from overdevelopment. And we were able, through the generosity of a number of people, to buy three of the farms of the original that I know of, three of the original six farms. So, And it's it's quite a spectacular vista, For either leaving Clayton or entering Clayton from Cape Vincent, because you have all this wonderful hayfield. Yeah. 400 acres. pasture. 400 acres now. Yeah, all told. 400 all told, plus yeah. acres, yeah. And we've put in with grants, handicap walking trail. We've, again, not restored, but fixed up the barns so that they're stable. They're in good shape through... Repainted? Repainted through generosity of kittles. Some of it's been electrified. And a lot of people participated in terms of generosity. We're trying to make the farm self-sufficient. We have a farm manager who I think is still full-time. And then we have a part-time person who does the grooming. And then we leave part of the land to a farmer. Local farmer. Local farmer. Beef. And then we also sell the hay. We're partnering with Coyote Moon Vineyards to put in an acre of grapes way in the back on the west side of the farm so it doesn't despoil the vista of the hay field. And so we're going to have Zenda Farm Red wine in conjunction with Coyote Moon. And then we're partnering with Waldorf Organic Farm. From Lafargeville. From Lafargeville to put in an aged cheddar. Now we're not doing the milking or the cheese making, but we're using the 
creamery, which is one of the 10 barns that's all ceramic tile inside. And we're using, uh, in a controlled environment, one of the larger rooms. It's not a big building, but it'll hold a lot of cheese to age cheese. So we're going to have a Zender Farm aged cheddar. And then ultimately down the road, we will probably have maple syrup and honey. honey. And uh, who knows, maybe someday make mead or whatever. I don't know. But all of this will be done, I would think, with an educational component where we're going to, well, the farm is open to the public, uh, where people will come in and be able to see the cheese process, the honey making. Maybe someday, I mean, maple trees obviously have to get old, but maple sugaring and then the vineyard, viniculture. Yeah. And the money from the sale of these things will help provide funds to run the farm, which are in addition to the endowment we will be receiving from a generous family in Clayton who is bequeathing a large sum of money for the purpose of maintaining this farm for the public good. There's a finite amount of capacity, which mm -hmm. is a major thing, because every parcel we take, every acre we take, carries with it a concomitant responsibility for the stewardship of it, and some of the stewardship can be very difficult. For example, we acquired a number of parcels, including Zender Farms and the Russia Farm on Grindstone, Mid-River Farm, and these purposes primarily of these preserves now are for migratory songbirds that breed in grasslands, and apparently the United States is going through a phase where the largest habitat type that's disappearing, I guess, is grasslands. It used to be wetlands, with so many of them gone now. Now it's grasslands that are disappearing, either through development, as I mentioned before in Virginia, with these mega mansions on these little lots, or through just incursion by forests and plant succession. You know, you get junipers coming in first, then willows. Yeah, the loss, like loss of yeah. a small family yeah. farm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so it's very important because a lot of these birds migrate to Central and South America, of course, some to Florida, and like I do. These birds uh, fly back and they have to have a place to nest. They'll only nest, some adapt, but they only nest in grassland. So when we talk about stewardship responsibility, these fields have to mowed periodically. I guess the rule of thumb is every three years. Minimum. They have to mm -hmm. be cut back. And that implies you have to have a worker, implies you have to have a tractor, implies you have to have a, a bush hog. Now, in a perfect world, the hay would be used and baled and used to feed animals and so on. But we don't have that many animals on grindstone anymore. Or, for that matter, the family farms are decreasing in the North Country. But we're trying to keep up with the habitat of the, the grasslands. So that's just one example of the type of maintenance and stewardship that is required. Of course, if you have a property right, as we discussed earlier, known as a conservation easement, you have to protect that. And that means physical inspection. The land of, trust has to uh, uh, Yes, we, the, when I say we, I mean mm -hmm. the land trust. Physical inspection of the property, at least annually, including our own properties. But properties where we just have an interest, like easement properties, we have had people violating the clauses of the land within the easement. Frequently it's accidental, sometimes it's willful, but sometimes people will cut down trees that are larger than that they're permitted to cut down so, because they want what they think is a better view rather than trimming it or they'll cut the tree down. In other cases, they'll build prohibited structures on the waterfront. Case in point, somebody built a pump house and there was no necessity for him to put the pump house where he put it other than he just wanted it where he put it. He could have put it in or adjacent to the boathouse, which was already there and it wouldn't have been a problem, but it just cuts up the shoreline. So we do have violations. They have to be policed and the ultimate thing is you get involved in a lawsuit. We belong to an umbrella organization called That's the Land Trust Alliance and they provide an insurance program in which we enroll which helps cover
of the costs of some of the stuff. But, but anyway, we will but have here this. here to date, no lawsuits, correct? There have been no actions filed at yeah, all. Yeah. There have been complaints, but yeah. no actions, right? We've been threatening here and there, yeah. but no, thank goodness, no. So there will always be the stewardship aspect of it, but one of the main purposes of the land trust, as it was constructed, was to provide public access. Not so much, I guess you can encompass it in the word recreation, but public access. So we do have a lot of trails, and some of them are pretty harsh. Yeah. So we have a number of trails throughout the North Country, as far away as, well, I guess past Chippewa Bay, there are a couple. And then there's one, I don't think there's anything in Cape Vincent, but right at the western border of Clayton, there's a small walking trail with access to the waterfront by the f- pedestrian. Foster you know. Blake? Yeah, yeah, Foster Blake Woods, and that has a small parking area. And then there's Otter Creek Trail. One of the projects we had, which was primarily that of our former executive director, Sissy Danforth, we were able to buy, well, we were going through an era in the 1980s when the railroads, small railroads were divesting themselves of all the railroad lines. They had sold off the rolling stock and the trains. Then they sold off the ties, and which are used in landscaping. And then, then they, they sold. sold off the rails for scrap and so on. And they were left with these miles and miles and miles, I mean, thousands of miles of straight as an arrow land going through spectacular areas through the Adirondacks. And these put these up for sale. And we came across a mimeograph sheet of all these pieces of property, you know, 1,000 feet of railroad line, the Adirondacks, for, I don't know, $5,000. And I mean, it's just yeah. unbelievable. They were 100 feet wide, or they're 1,000 feet long, or 2,000 yeah. feet long. So anyway, we started to reconstruct part of the Rome, Ogdensburg, and Watertown spur, which came off the New York Central. And we ultimately put together, I think, 17 miles of this, at least, some of which we can't use. It's unusable because of beaver dams and just nature taking over. But pretty much from the town of Clayton, Black Creek Road, to Redwood, and most recently what we're trying to do now with the trail, and this is all part of what I was saying before, as you preserved all the land that's sort of preservable, you have to steward it, but then you have a responsibility, and it's also one of the missions of the land trust is to outreach the public, to bring them into open space and let them appreciate nature in the raw, if you will. But the most recent one is we're trying to bring this Rivergate Trail, Rome, Ogdensburg, and Watertown, bring that right into the village of Clayton to hook it up to the Riverwalk, which is a village project that goes around Clayton, which is a peninsula, and where you'll be able to start at one end of Clayton and walk almost three quarters away around the peninsula on the waterfront. Yes. Some of it, I think, is going to be cantilevered out, actually, yeah. over the water. They're, they're and then coming back south, that'll connect with the railroad line. From the village to Lafargeville. The other project, trail-wise, is we have a wonderful trail at Otter Creek, which is, uh, I guess, an interesting story, is on a creek in Alexandria Bay, in the town of Alexandria, and then the village. And Otter Creek is one of the feeders into the St. Lawrence River. And uh, a number of years ago, a family who are supporters of the land trust, two families, uh, Butts and Kiernan, gave us a small island in this creek behind the supermarket, or just actually it's to the east of the supermarket. And then ultimately they gave us another island and a little little piece of the mainland. And then all of a sudden, as I said, some people think you had a grand design. Well, if somebody gives us a little island that's not part necessarily of a grand design, but all of a sudden we have another island and wooded, and then we have a piece of the mainland. Well, now you start saying, well, what can we do with this? Well, next thing you know, the abandoned scrubland farm adjacent to that comes up for sale. So we buy that. So now we have quite a few acres that runs along this creek bed with two islands. And that starts to be something. And we conceptualized under our current executive 
director, Jake Tibbles, the idea of putting in a preserve and walking trails at Otter Creek. So we were able to get a grant to build an observation platform, a parking lot, and then we have one portion that's handicap accessible there. We partnered with the Thousand Islands Art Center, Craft School, and Home of the Hand Weeding Museum to build a dry stone wall as a, a whimsy, if you will, which is very beautiful. That's there, the stone being donated by local quarry, Mike Fitzsimmons, and trucked in. A lot of people go to doing this stuff. I had no, almost no involvement in this one, mm-hmm. other than perhaps maybe the first donation, perhaps. But that trail goes out along the creek. What about the very special trail that always has impressed me is the one between the two state parks? Oh, yeah. That it cross, it links two state parks yeah. on Grindstone across yeah, well, land, that's, land trust that's property. A, yeah, that's a couple of interesting stories there that are encompassed in the one. Of course, this is near where I live, on the foot of Grindstone Island. I think it, I mentioned earlier that after the state of New York had purchased Niagara Falls, which I think was the first state park, they purchased Canoe Picnic Point State Park, yeah, which whole, was a peninsula. And they were pioneering you know, the whole process of the concept of state parks. Correct. By the state, the state of New York yeah. was. So Sorry. Canoe Point primarily is this peninsula on the southeast corner, I'm sorry, northeast corner of Grindstone Island, right on the smack dab on the Canadian border. I don't know how many acres it is. It might be, I don't know, five, eight, ten acres, something like that. But in buying that, they bought a sliver of land, which is mostly wetland, that connected with the next point south, which is called Picnic Point. And in the era of 1900 or so, they put gazebos on both points. One was on Canoe, which was a little bit obscured from the photos I've seen, but the one on Picnic is pretty prominent. It's up on a small bluff. The state over the years maintained these as two separate sites because they couldn't get from one to the other. They didn't own any dry land. They only owned the wetland that connected the two. So when the land trust came along in 19, about 95 or so, that's the decade and beyond project. One of the things we purchased primarily with a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was the farm, the Delaney farm that I mentioned earlier that abutted this property. I wrote that grant myself. Sissy wrote some of the grants, but this one I wrote. I said what we wanted to do is to put in a nature trail connecting Canoe Point and Picnic Point so that people could walk from one to the other and have a you know self-guided nature trail. And I said that we would also commit to building the gazebo. Rebuilding because it had deteriorated. It was gone. The Rebuilding the gazebo at Picnic Point. Well, lo and behold, we get the grant for $85,000 to buy the land. And over the next, it takes you know a long time to work this stuff out. But over the next couple of years, we hired a fellow who ultimately became our executive director, Aaron Vogel, out of SUNY ESF for a summer, come up and design the nature trail. And part of the nature trail, because of the nature of the land it had across these wetlands, he designed two, well, actually one environmentally safe bridge. I don't know, environmentally friendly screws that were screwed in. And the state of New York helped us build this. We provided the materials and the New York State Correctional Facility at Cape Vincent provided us with their trustees. And they sent the trustees over in a state boat every day for three weeks. That's and I, I went up every day and worked with them, as did Aaron. And they helped build the trail. They so cut the trail. It was the, jungle. It was it, jungle. It's honeysuckle. Yeah, overgrown. You've never been in overgrown farmland, let me tell you, you know, 30, 40 years after the farmer leaves, it's impenetrable because the trees that come in, they're not trees, they're very densely populated shrubs, and you just can't get through that stuff. So we cut this trail, the convicts, and under the supervision of the guard, and we cut the trail through from canoe to picnic, and the bridges were beautiful. We had wood left over, so Aaron designed another loop, which we call the Bad Root Trail or something, Bear Root Trail, and it's aptly named because you have to go over these roots. It's really a nightmare to walk through, but there's another bridge in there that goes 
goes over the wetland. And it's pretty neat, and it's used by hundreds and hundreds of people. But then that spun off the gazebo project. And what Sissy, Aaron was Sissy's assistant by this time, what Sissy did is she put together a group of donors. I was one of them, but she focused primarily on the fishing guides, which is a whole other story. We have a history of the river of having these short dinners and fishing guides, and it's a whole little microeconomy. A lot of them are father, son, grandson fishing guides. Over the years, the guides would have these short dinners. They'd make a catch, and then they'd come and have this heart attack causing short dinner where they'd start with eight or ten pounds of salt pork, cook it in an outdoor grill, and then they'd, for an appetizer, they'd take the ribbonous or the crispy salt pork and put it on a piece of white bread, and that was your appetizer, and then they'd dip the fish in flour or something and throw that in, and then they ended it off with French toast cooked in the same fat, served with maple syrup and a shot of bourbon. They, they still do this. It's a short dinner, but you got to be careful. You can't eat too many of them. Well, what happened over the years, they would have different guide docks in the area. Now, remember, population density changed dramatically from the 60s on, and I don't know the real reasons for it. I just general affluence in society. More people could afford boats, but the population density sort of moved into the Thousand Island area, and the property became more valuable. And what would happen to these so-called guide docks is the guide who actually owned the dock, but other guides used the dock, would die. And the other guides would say, that's our dock. And the widow, or whomever, the heir would say, no, it isn't. It's my dock. I have the deed, and I'm selling it for a house site. So all the guide docks, at least three of my grindstone disappeared that way. At least three of them. They had no place else or very few places to have these short dinners. So the industry was starting to hurt a little. And what Sissy did, one of the really good things she did, she cut a deal with the state. We always got along well with the state state, state parks. parks. And I think Mike Geis might have been, but who followed, followed him? Kevin? Kevin Keith. Kevin Keith. They were both outstanding. And we you know, work with them hand in glove, these guys. Meaning they were head of region Yeah, six. they were just wonderful, wonderful. And we cut a deal with them. We provide the funds for the gazebo, which was not cheap. We provide the funds for the material. To buy the material. Right. The architect who worked on it, I can't recall his name, he's retired. He was a state employee. He found the original design for the original gazebo and kept to it as faithfully as he yeah, could. Yeah. And they found the original pins where it was anchored in, so within three feet of the original gazebo. And so we built the gazebo. And what the brilliant thing that Sissy did is cut a deal with the state to just spruce up the park, picnic. And they put in bathrooms, self-composting toilets, and they put in new floating docks for the one portion of which yeah. was reserved exclusively for the fishing guides from 11 to 2 to which I thought was brilliant so now the guides have some place to go and I don't know how many people know the story anymore and then they also put in new uh, places where they could grill new fireplaces mm -hmm. and so on and of course with the new docks and it was really a neat package yeah. when it was all done it's a br brilliant idea yeah. yeah brilliant idea that's right you and I saw some wild columbine out there with Bob uh, beautiful wild Bob columbine Quinn. remember yeah. that trip yeah, which is the red and yellow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It should be in bloom. First powder. week of June, right? Yeah. So that was a really terrific private-public partnership. And Knockwood, it's absolutely problem-free. Problem. Maintenance can be a problem, but we're trying to stay ahead of that curve. And after we had the ice storm, but before that, there was the microburst. Microburst took out of 95, of, 96. Yeah. And took a, what was the ice storm then, 98? 98, because yeah, Mary's a, brother was still in town. The ice storm trimmed all the trees. Yeah which made it difficult navigating at night because all the islands, if you get used to navigating at night visually, you go by the shape of the island. Yeah. And the shapes of the islands the horizon, changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So 
you know, there's black and there's black, black, and black, black, yeah, black. Yeah. And uh, when your eyes are good, you can see the difference. But it made it difficult at night because you say it doesn't look like Maple Island, you know, because Maple used to be just a perfect crescent. And then we have a brochure, a self-guided brochure. You know, this is a whatever tree, and this is another tree. And as you go down this nature trail, it, it wanders from state land back to tilt land, back to state land. Yeah. You naturally can see the old barbed wire fence that lasts for a century where the farm used, used to fence it off to keep the cows off. You never think cows lived on this piece of property because we've, we've let that particular part of the farm, we don't maintain that as grassland, this farm, the Delaney farm. We maintain it as a successional shrubland. And the only way you can keep it successional is periodically we go in under a plan, management plan, and cut back 15, 20, 30 acres of it with a bush hog. So that we cut back, you know, the 15, 20 foot understory trees and then let the grass come up and the pioneers come in, the junipers and stuff like that. But that, because that attracts a whole different other set of migratory birds. But the other story I wanted to tell you that's yeah. attendant to the Canoe Point Picnic Point State Park. The Thousand Islands, I guess, is an archipelago and technically it has all these little granite rock outcroppings from a point which becomes very convenient when your boat hits it to uh, an island like uh, inconvenient an island like Wolf Island that's 17 miles long and supports I don't know maybe a hundred year-round people with dairy farms and whatnot and there are many smaller islands that are very beautiful which is what makes the Thousand Islands beautiful some of them have trees some don't but there are many of them that might be just an acre half acre they're just lovely unfortunately some of them have fallen to uh, developers uses and People have put cottages on these basically bare rocks. And as I always said, you know, one of them is quaint, but three of them are tacky. So one of the things I tried to do as president of Land Trust was try to prevent construction on inappropriate sized pieces of property. I go back and forth by boat all the time. Of course, I live on an island, and that's how you go visit people. Uh, to go out to dinner, you go out by boat, and so on. So you leave my place, and you just go about a half a mile, and I turn left and run up the foot of Grindstone. That's where these state parks are, as well as some private homes. And there are three little islands that are, they don't even, almost don't even look like islands. They're so close to oh, the yeah, yeah. grindstone property, but they're heavily treed, pines, oaks. I'm sure they were clear cut in 1900, but you know, this is 118 years later, so the trees might be 100 years old. And I go by them one day, and I notice that there are signs. It looked like a dock. So the water's pretty open there. By that, I mean it's deep. So I take my boat over, and my vision was pretty good at that time. I noticed it says posted, no trespassing. And there's a dock on each one of these islands. I said, that doesn't make sense. It looks like part of Picnic Point. How can that be? So I took pictures of it. And yeah, when you post something, you're supposed to put the name of the owner. So it's um, like the no hunting. Yeah, no hunting sign. No trespassing. So I look up the owner at some engineering company. Well, I try to track down who owns the engineering company, and it's a local lawyer who's no longer in practice, retired. And I said, this doesn't, just doesn't make sense. Because to me, it's state land. It's my land, because it's so close to Picnic Point. So about that time, which is yet another story, we had this project, we being the land trust, trying to protect a lot of these rocks, islands, and shoals. And my next-door neighbor, who was just going to enter law school or was in law school, he did some research at the county seat in Watertown, and he comes across this old chart from 1890. And what the chart was, was a map of Grindstone Island done by a surveyor named Duke Carter, which showed all the farms and who owned them and so on. But what it also did is it number, numbered every single island that was within close proximity to Grindstone from 
one up to mm. 80 something. So what I found was in 1880, two of these islands were on this chart. The third one wasn't, but I still felt they belonged to the state of New York. So I was working in a city at that time. I'd have to go to frequently to Albany to represent the university and I'd steal a half day or whatever and go over to the department of, I think it's Office of General Services, which is the state agency that manages the property that the state owns. And I bring the copies, this narrative of these islands and so on, the proximity to picnic points to a park. And I talked to the administrator in charge and I said, I think this guy's claimed state land because I checked the deeds out. The deed he had wasn't a warranty deed. Now a warranty deed is, it's a deed that guarantees ownership of the property. When you give a warranty deed to somebody, you're promising them that you have a right to this property, you do own the property, and I warrant that this is true. And it's actionable if it isn't. You can come back and bite the guy, sue him. Another type of deed is a quit claim deed, which says quit claim, Q-U-I-T-C-L-A-I-M. And a quit claim deed is, basically it says, I give to you any interest I have in this parcel of land, if I have any interest at all. So you're giving away nothing, but it's still a deed. And it's valid until somebody else says it's not. So this engineering company owned by the attorney was quit claimed to the attorney, or vice versa. In any case, he quit claimed it to himself, which you can't do, but he set up a dummy. So I go through this with the administrator, o OGS, and he says, okay, well, let me look into it. A year goes by. I'm back up in Albany again doing lobbying or whatever it was. I meet with him again, remember me? Well, he doesn't want to see me. And he says, you know, Ken, let me show you the problems I have. And he takes out a big map and he spreads out this big map of Oswego Harbor and he has a projector and he has all these old surveys from 1840, 1830, whatever. And he shows me the differences over the years, what's happened at Oswego Harbor. But if you know anything about state law, New York State owns most of the river bottoms and freshwater bottoms. And you can't take land from the state. It goes back to what's called English common law, which is what our legal system for the most part is derived from. There's no such thing as adverse possession against the crown. You can't claim crown lands. In this case, the state is the crown. You can't claim the lands. So look what's happening in Oswego. There are condos here. There's houses here. There's storefronts here. This is all on state land, and we got to sue these guys. Now, obviously, we're not going to take the land back and tear the condos down, but they got to pay us. So these are my problems. So I said, what do I do? I don't want this guy getting away with claiming my land, even though it's three small islands. Mine in the sense that it's right. publicly. Mine, public, right. Well, I take that view. Yeah, I agree. You know. And he says, well, you really want to do it. You want to screw up everybody. He says, you want to find a descendant of Elijah Camp and get him to donate anything he might have inherited from his ancestor, Elijah Camp. Well, who is Elijah Camp? After the Revolutionary War ended and ultimately the treaty was signed in 1820 or something, you had the War of 1812 in between. Well, the border was finally set and the government as you might guess, has to protect its borders, which is a big thing now they're talking about. And they try to encourage settlement. So they encourage settlement by doing these big, cheap land sales, usually to politically favored people. And Elijah Camp, I think, was a colonel in Seconds Harbor Militia, and he bought all the islands. All the islands. All the islands, basically from Grindstone down to Hammond. And then he started selling them off. Where the hell am I going to find a descendant of this guy? I mentioned it to the guy who worked for us at that time. His name was Bill Monroe. He was really the first executive director. So I mentioned this to him because I worked very closely with the executive director. So he goes to a cocktail party. This is a bizarre story. Goes to a cocktail party at Murray Isle and why he brings it up, I don't know. But he says Ken has this crazy idea. He's trying to find a descendant of Elijah Camp who bought all the islands in 1823 or whenever it was because he's trying to get some islands back from somebody he thinks stole them basically from the state of New York. Well, there's a woman who's an attorney there, Daphne Miller, and she was a principal law clerk for a pretty renowned judge in Nassau County. And she says, well, I have a winter home in San 
Sanibel Island and is an Elijah Camp trail at Ding Dialing mm. Federal Preserve. So she tells us to Bill, Bill tells us to me. I said, that's an impossibility. So I'm at work, by the way, in New York City working for the City University, but I had a loose leash, and so I could pretty much do anything I wanted. So I call up uh, Ding Darling Federal Wildlife Preserve, very famous on Sanibel Island, identified who I was. And I said, I'm looking, do you have an Elijah Camp trail? No. We don't. I said, oh, well, I was told you did by a resident. Well, you know, there is a state park here, so they might have one. Check with them. So I check with whatever state park it is. Oh, yes, we have a, an Elijah Camp trail. It's named after Mr. Camp, who's one of our benefactors. I said, is he still alive? He said, yes, I think so. He's elderly, and I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but I think he's still alive. And his name is Elijah Camp. Oh, yes, we named the trail after him. Well, now I have a name and have a place. Again, in the era of cell phones and all this other miracle stuff, you have to think back. This is, I don't know what year now, but it was way... It it's had before to, I got to the Yeah, line. it had to have been after 85 and before, and before 93, because that's when I worked for the university, mm -hmm. so I figure it was about 88. I'm watching television that night, and this does all tie up. The United States Post Office, now it's Postal Service, had just created something called Express Mail, and they had an ad on TV where they had Zeus throwing a lightning bolt. Boom! With the power of modern whatever, Express mail it today and get it tomorrow. Only $10.30, whatever it was, $9.20. So I figured, well, why not? So I write out this narrative. Mr. Elijah Camp, Sanibel Island. I look up the zip code, 30176, whatever it is. I'm Kenneth Deedy. I'm president of a conservation organization, blah, 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 blah. And we have this guy who stole these islands from us and da, 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 da. And I was wondering if you would consider, if you are a descendant of Elijah Camp, donating to us any interest you have, may have, might have inherited from your ancestor. I sent it express mail, not knowing where the hell it's going to end. Uh, I had once read, and believe it or not, Ripley, about the post office department, that somebody had written a sent in envelope a letter, a fan letter, to Dinah Shore, who was a famous mm. actress, and he wrote a dinosaur oh. on the envelope, and they delivered it to Dinah Shore. <laughs> so I figured, well, geez, if that can work, why wouldn't this, you know? So anyway, a week or two later, I get a letter, handwritten, very shaky, from Elijah Camp. Yes, I am the direct descendant of Elijah Camp, and I am a conservationist, and they did name a trail after me, and I think it's wonderful what you're trying to do, and I'll sign anything you want me to sign, and here's a check for $100. $100, a lot of money, 85, 86, 80, yeah. some, somewhere in there. So I get my nephew, who is in law school, Matt Deedy, and Will, who's thinking of law school, and we, using this old old survey map of Grindstone, and we start looking at all the islands, then we look at the adjacent property and see if they were deeded to anybody, and where they weren't, we quit claimed maybe a half dozen or more islands around Grindstone, and then we finished the town of Clayton, we went into Alexandria, and then we went to Hammond, so we picked up 20 or 30 islands doing this, and Mr. Camp ultimately gave us two quit claim deeds, which have held up in most cases. There was one case where somebody had an older deed than ours, and it caused a ruckus, and all we did was quit claim our interest over to that person. That, that ended that, sort of. So we picked up these 30 or 40 islands. But still, there's the outstanding story of the three islands yes. that are appended to the state. Now, this is an older claim than we would have, because if it's an acquit claim, you're claiming anything you might own, and the older claim usually takes precedent. If you have a warranty, it's different, but it's quit claim. It's the older claim takes precedent, usually. So I'm not at the point of despair, but I just don't know what to do. And I go to a Land Trust Alliance conference at New Pulse, and there was a deputy commissioner named Ivan Vamos. It's amazing, I can remember these names. And I grabbed him, he gave a lecture. At the end of the lecture, I grabbed him, I went through this whole tale of woe. 
He says, send me the material. I figured, well, that's another one that's going to get shuffled. So I send it to him. Well, lo and behold, about two months later, I go to town, I pick up the Watertown Times, and they are right across the front page, the Sunday paper, State of New York sues local attorney to recover property illegally seized. So I immediately, that Monday, get on the phone with the deputy attorney general who's handling the case and said, listen, I have a file on this. Let me turn it over to you. So he, he took that file and they were able to show two of the islands weren't islands. They in were eight, not islands. Were not islands when the state bought the land. So they were not numbered when the state bought the land in 1880, 1890. So that meant they were part of the mainland. But what's happened in between? Part of the grindstone. Maybe. The rivers come up, made them mm -hmm. islands. It was lower then. Seaway. On average. The seaway, the dam. So that was a slam dunk. They were part of the original purchase. But what did he do about the third one, which was an identified island? It was number 33 or what? I don't know. But back 1915 or so, state parks and DEC were the same agency. They were split apart into two different agencies, parks, recreation, and whatever, and then DEC. Some of the files went there. Some of the files went here. There's a retired worker who somehow gets a hold of the Watertown Times article, which must have been reprinted in the Syracuse paper. It says, hmm, I've seen that file on Canoe and Picnic Point. You know, we have that somewhere in my office. So he goes back to his old office, finds the original docs. Sure enough, there's the bill of sale for island number 33. They had bought it independently. So the lawyer lost the case. He argued adverse possession. Of course, you can't have adverse possession against the crown. So that was it. So the state got the three. They immediately took down the docs. State did. So you have these. Someday when you go by it, you'll see that there's three separate islands. They look like the one is very distinctly an island. And it is buildable, I think. So they're <coughs> preserved very beautiful little places where people could just pull up and walk around or whatever. We bought a number of islands too over the years, one grouping of which was the Eagle Wings outside of Clayton. They're just a group right of rocks. Calum. Calumet Island, near Right, Calum. behind Calumet. Well, behind, I mean north of. And they're important because they were a major habitat for common tern, which is a type of bird that in, was in terrific decline for loss of habitat or quality habitat. You know, yeah. owls love baby terns, so if they're near any large wooded area, the owls will come over and eat them. Or once in a while, a mink will get out and just wipe out the whole colony. How we bought that group of islands, I was tipped off by a friendly attorney that they were coming up for a tax sale as a consequence of a bad divorce. Well, I guess all divorces are bad, but this one was worse than most. And I spoke to another attorney who said, well, why don't you just buy them? I said, I didn't know you still could. She said, oh yeah, if you buy them before the sale, you can. So I got the board to authorize her to try to negotiate the purchase. In the meantime, one of our board members at the time, Alan Newell, who was also not only a volunteer board member, he used to do a, a lot of work researching ownership of these islands and stuff like this. He went down to the county seat. When they auctioned off property on the steps, they actually auction off property. Item number one, lot so-and-so, so-and-so. Opening bid, $500. 500, 600 sold, gone. So he went down, I think with the authority to spend up to 20,000 to buy these five or six islands. And, you know, gave up his day of whatever he was doing. And I, I'm waiting, I'm working. And I, I, he calls me up and he said, they pulled the sale because it wasn't advertised properly. You know, before you sell somebody's property rights away, you have to advertise it and follow A, B, C, D, E. Well, they didn't do it properly. In the meantime, that gave our attorney, I think she was Marcy Dems, who lives on Wellesley, the opportunity to negotiate with the owner. And I think the judgment was for 8000 or 7000 in the divorce. And I think we offered him nine. And she said, look, this is going to cover your costs. It's going to cover the judgment. You'll walk away with a thousand bucks. And he said, okay. But that caused another problem. The other problem was there was a guy who owned a marina who wanted to buy them. This is all rumor. I didn't know this firsthand. But he wanted to put floating docks on them so you could put up houseboats and stuff like that. Oh. 
which is exactly what we didn't want to happen. So now it's a preserve for common turn. I think we do let a kid, we give a kid the right to set up a duck blind and take, if he loves, he takes it down. He's been doing it for years. Good one. Good one. Yeah, All good was another, in another one instance that didn't work out too well, although it did now, here again, time wounds all heals. Heals all wounds, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had quit claimed five islands in town of Hammond, and the islands belonged to the father of one of our board members. I took him out to breakfast. I said, Bob, this is we did this out of all innocence. We didn't know you own them. We apologize. We'll do anything you want. If you want to give us your interest in the islands, take it as a charitable donation. If you want to put an easement, because I'm after protecting the islands. If you want to put an easement on the island, you know, put an easement on, you can take a charitable donation, or we will quit claim our interests to you. And That'll just clear it up. So he said, well, I want your interest quit claim to me. So that's what we did. But he really stopped talking to me for about 10 years. But we made him whole. So, but he, boy, did he get angry. But he's okay now. Crooked Creek, which, yeah. is, which is what, over a thousand acres now? The Crooked yeah. Creek Preserve. But there must be countless stories of how that got going. And right. How and that, you have a trail there. and Yeah, how that came about. My recollection is, if I got it straight, we were buying Potter's Beef, and we had a late fall meeting. And I think we had it at the Pier House. We only had about 10 or 11 board members, but everybody showed up. It's when we bought Potter's and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And the so wife. Had a quorum. Yeah. Oh, everybody was there. Oh, everybody very, was there. Yeah. We always have quorums, but this everybody was there. Kate Newell, who was a spouse of one of the board members, said, you know, you're buying all the stuff on Grindstone Upriver. You really ought to take a look at stuff downriver. And I said, such as what? She said, well, Crooked Creek, there's a parcel for sale. And I think that's how that got started. Not that year, but ultimately I made contact with the people at Crooked Creek. And they were floating an idea in the paper that the parcel they had, which let me tell you what it is, a heavily wooded parcel, maybe 600 acres on a creek that's crooked. It's, but it's, it's not only crooked, it's navigable. And it's spectacular because it has granite rock outcroppings. It has it all. It's just spectacular just to canoe up it, kayak it, even motor up it. It's just spectacular creek. And two people on it, two cousins. And they were floating the idea of that would be the ideal place for a prison because they were looking for a prison in St. Lawrence County. So Sissy and I called them up, and I had to write out a check for $5,000 deposit. You have the money in the bank this time? Yeah, we are. No, by this time, we're fortunate. We've never been in dire straits. Yeah. But this is just the way ideal, you know, you show a good faith effort terms of deposit. And we went down, a lovely couple. She made us coffee and homemade cookies that were delicious. And I brought them homemade jelly. And, you know, it's what I do. And we made an offer. I had a purchase offer for, I don't remember how much we paid for it. It wasn't a terrible amount, maybe a hundred something. But I gave it with a $5,000 check right there. And he said, well, he doesn't know. I'll talk it over with his cousin. Well, a day or two later, he agreed to buy it. So we had the initial chunk. And this is another funny story. We bought it. We had it surveyed. Again, we bought it with a grant. I think from the Fish and Wildlife Foundation. I can't recall which foundation. Again, we had spectacular aerial views of the creek because mm. <clears throat> it is very, it's like a snake. Well, of course, massive amounts of wetland, but it's also the upland portion, which is the, let's say the dry portion. And that dry portion is on north of Route 12, which is the major road. And it's bordered by a road called Indian Point Road. Well, what we didn't know, nor did anybody else, Indian Point Road is populated with summer homes, almost the entire mile and a half length of it. And over the years, decades, people I guess it was a trail, and the trail became a road. A summer camp became a cabin. The cabin became a three-bedroom house, and then it became a three-bedroom house with a guest house, mm-hmm. and then a septic system, and all this. Well, anyway, garage. And a garage. <clears throat> Turns out we own almost everybody's front yard. The other people in the room here are gasping. Let me tell you, sissy and I both gasped because we don't need this political issue. Again, Sissy Beetle Danforth was the executive director. She contacts every single landowner with the survey. Basically says, look, we don't want any problems. You cover the cost of 
resurveying your parcel and filing the deed, you can have it. And we did this time after time after time. People were still annoyed with us, which was sort of stupid. In one instance, I think we had to sell it for a couple of thousand dollars because clearly it was usable waterfront. And we're a nonprofit. Everything has to be above board. So we sold it for a nominal but believable sum of money. In another instant, it was waterfront. And we had a real estate agent give us just a letter of evaluation on appraisal. And she came up with fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000. And I said, Sissy, we better go take a look at this one. So we went down. And what it was, it was a piece of waterfront. But it was like a little inlet that was a V. And there was a house here, a house here, a house here. The docks almost touched each other. So it was absolutely unusable piece of property. And I said, this is worth nothing. Just split it up and give it to the you know adjacent homeowners. And that's what we did. But that was well-intentioned thing. But boy, did we get in hot water with that one. Yeah, we owned a garage. We owned the septic systems. Yeah. We owned front doors. We owned staircases. It was just, it was, it was awful. <laughs> so, and then... Over the years, again, once you start with this big chunk of preserve, we started buying up. Well, there were a couple of islands in the creek. One of the islands had a fishing camp on it. And I mentioned Mike and Barbara Mead before. Well, Mike had been a member of the board for years, and Barbara might as well have been a member of the board. You know, she's head of volunteers, volunteer of the century, volunteer of the year. And there's not an event that goes by that she's not running or helping with. She used to assiduously read the Barbara Mead, would assiduously read the Thousand Island Sun cover to cover, paying particular attention to the for sale. And there, was for sale, island and camp in Crooked Creek. Well, they lived around the corner from me, as you know. I had just come out of the hospital with carotid artery surgery. So I had staples going down my neck, and I think I had the surgery a week previously. And Barbara says, we got to go see this. we got to go see this. I said, okay, let's go tomorrow or whenever. So we called up the realtor. The realtor had had to rent this 14-foot aluminum boat. And Mike and Barbara and I set out on sort of a choppy day from Shermohan's Landing, which is on the river. And then we had to go up the creek under the Route 12 bridge. I'm holding my neck together with my left hand so that it doesn't pull apart and my, my artery pops out. We made it back. But I'm just telling you the circumstances. <laughs> so it was $12,000. So, and it's a nice camp. I mean, it's a funny camp. And we, we got in and a lot of different old artifacts. And it's like two rooms. And right in the middle of the living room is a toilet, a commode that empties right into the wetland. That's how they used it. It was a hunting camp. So we just say, we got to have this. It was a lovely, lovely, lovely island. So I said, I don't have the board authority. I was on my best behavior. And Mike says. I was going to say it was a rare day. Yeah. <clears throat> my, well, they gave me, they I'm gave me a loose leash do. But Mike Mead says, if Tilt doesn't want it, I'll buy it. So I figured I was covered. So at the next board meeting, you know, I do my thing and print it out, show him a picture. And Ellen Burt, who is a river woman of some renown, she just chews me up one side and down the other for exceeding my authority. And I, you know, did my mea culpa. I said, well, Mike was going to buy it if we don't. And so if the board doesn't want to buy it, I'll say, okay, Mike will buy it. Well, naturally, the board voted to buy the property. But what does Ken do the very next thing is I organize a field trip with lunch for all the board members to go down to Crooked Creek to see this island. And then and she said, you did the right thing. So, because uh, it's very prominent on a bend in a river on the creek with the island and the yeah, camp yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. We almost lost one board member that day, John Tucker. It was some sort of hole he fell in all the way up to his crotch. He just trooped. Off the dock, wasn't it? There was some yeah, problem yeah, with the dock. Yeah, but he went down with just one leg. He's lucky he didn't wrench his other leg, but it was pretty neat. And then subsequent to that, we bought two more camps. There were a total of three, and we wound up owning all three. One we tore down. One is still there. Sissy bought it, and you she cut a deal. You can't tear it down. Isn't it made of cement or something? The first one. No, the second one we tore. Aaron tore one down the winter Yeah. and burned it on the ice because of what Aaron and Jeremy Kellogg, I think, 
because it just wasn't salvageable. Yeah. The other camp I think we still own, and how we got that, Sissy bought it from a guy who lived in Texas who would come up and spend a week roughing it in this camp. He was a trucker, and she gave him life use. Who cares? Yeah. And ultimately, he didn't want it after a few years, and he signed it, signed away his life use. So we own three camps. I think that one is on the mainland. But over the years, we bought up other tracts of land there, and in at least one instance, we bought one with a couple of huge barns. Huge The barn. biggest barns I've ever seen in my life. And what we did there was we cut out the wetland and glacial pond and kept the dog leg entry and then sold it to farmers with an easement. Yeah, so kept the kept Land we trust kept the, kept we the kept land. We kept the wetland and the kept shoreline. Some of the upland, including a glacial pond that was behind the wetland and beyond the forest edge. And then sold the. And then sold the bulk of the farm. Including the buildings. Including all the barns. Yeah. The big barns. Biggest yeah. I've ever seen. To a farmer to keep it on the tax roll, yeah. keep it in agricultural yeah. use, which it still is. That was my first. That was the first project while I was president. Was it? Yeah. 92. Selling it. Buying it. Buying it. 2000, the fall of 2003. Yeah. yeah. Very exciting when these things work. Well, it was and Aaron's idea to split it. He made the connection to the local farmer. Yeah, Aaron did a lot of the work. That Aaron was a year Bogle. later. <clears throat> yeah, and then we bought additional properties there, and we partnered with SUNY ESF, Department of Fisheries, out of College of Environmental Science and Forestry with fish ladders and wetland restoration and so on. Uh, most recently, we just bought an upland portion, which is adjacent to Crooked Creek, parcel, north of Route 12. Does it border but Crooked Creek? It borders Crooked Creek at the entrance to the trail, which is named after Dick and Mary McSherry, the McSherry Trail. And it's right across from that entryway there. But on the other end of this parcel, which contains probably eight or ten potholes, you no know, glacial ponds, maybe more, is, I think it's Cring Point State Park. So we abut the state park, yes, too. It is, yeah. So it's it's a nice... When it comes to preserving habitat, the rule of thumb is bigger is better. So the more canopied forest you have, the healthier it is is for songbirds. Mm -hmm. The more wetlands you have, the healthier it is mm -hmm. for wetland mm -hmm. birds. And the more grassland you have, the better it is for grassland birds. So it makes a nice uninterrupted habitat. So what has evolved over the years now, basically, is we have pretty much, when you count the land trust and the easements we hold, the property we hold, and the state lands, Minna Anthony Common Nature Center lands, and other public lands, is pretty much a continuous forests along the river through the islands from west of the town of Clayton almost to the town of Hammond. It gets a little thin in Alexandria because there isn't that much island property, but it's pretty much, you know, a canopied forest that's pretty healthy for migratory birds that stretches that, that far. That'll never change. Well, maybe some things that, that I think I sort of learned that are applicable, I guess, to any nonprofit or to anybody doing business is that particularly when you're talking about nonprofits, you're talking about people's property. Like we had a visitor earlier today Sylvia Schultz, who grew up on Grindstone on a family farm. She put an easement on her property. Part of it was a donation, and part of it we purchased. And it's called a bargain sale. Well, there's a difference between the appraised value and yeah, the... Yeah, a yeah. valid difference yeah, yes. between valid appraised value and the actual sale. So it helped her in a couple of ways. It gave her cash and perhaps a, a write-off to offset capital gains or whatever, but enabled her to keep the farm. But that's not my point. My point is that in almost all the cases, you can't achieve any of this if you haven't established a trust level with the owner of the property. The owner of the property doesn't trust the organization to do the right thing. There's no way you're going to be able to get it. They'll sell it to somebody else or they won't sell it at mm -hmm. all. So these things don't happen overnight. No, how about the... They take years. They take decades. Thinking the one at the entrance of the Picton Channel. That was a long... Heinemann? No, Baum. Baum. Yeah, that was another a long... farm family. Yeah. That, that, who had sort of an unease yeah. about this fancy non-profit. You know, yeah, it's another grindstone <clears throat> But a tremendously farm important... That's still on the tax roll, still in there. Yeah, they own it. Family 
maybe a hundred years. It's what's this? 2018, maybe a hundred years. Been the family, and man, if they didn't know me for us and Aaron, Aaron and Aaron Vogel, who's the late executive director, if they didn't know us for 10, 15 years, yeah. they just wouldn't have sold yeah. us the easement yeah. on the property. No, it's an important wetlands, yeah. and it borders yeah. tilt own. Yeah, wetlands. Yes. So you know, together it's uh, right. as Ken was explaining right. earlier. You know, more is often better for the wildlife. Right. But the, the the lesson to be learned here: these things don't happen overnight. Although you have to be ready to strike while the iron's hot. These old farm families, if yeah. if they don't trust you, they're not going to deal with you yeah. at all. And it just takes a lot of um, it takes time to just build. being yourself, being truthful with the people. And when you don't have an answer to something, say, I don't know. I don't know. You know what's going to happen yeah. in the future. Don't but make as it best up. we can determine, maybe this. But it's one of the reasons we've been successful, particularly on Grindstone, but also throughout the River Valley, is people have come to trust the leadership, which has been consistent. Consistent in philosophy, maybe not consistent in people. But on the average, our presidents stay about three years. On the average, people stay on the board, I would guess, 12 to 15 years. So that's long service. It's not in and out, you know, like, oh, I was on this board, and I was on that board, and so on. Well, it took people me, work very, very hard. It takes two to three years to learn easement and right. property law. and yeah. Right, and it takes two to three years just to understand what we own yeah. and what we're trying to do. That's why the field trips are very important. But uh, any of these old farm families, Sylvia, Bob Baum, Bob Purcell is another one. These are all contiguous properties that uh, on which we have easements and which is still on the property rolls. And in some instances, because we were able to come up funding to protect wetlands, because that's the type of funding that's available currently, it able enable the people in, well, at least in three instances, to keep the farm because yeah. they're taxed at very high rates. Because even though the wetlands, it's still part of it, the town says, well, it's usable wetland, so we're going to whack you on this it's property waterfront, tax. Water it's view. waterfront, water view, all this. Yeah. So we've enabled a number of families to keep their farms. Not that they're farmed <laughs> anymore, but their grandparents farmed it, you know? So well, a lot of purposes serve. But here again, it's the trust level is a uh, thing. Also, you have to be ready to seize opportunities. Two cases, I had a realtor to say to me not too long ago, I'm getting a listing tomorrow on a piece of property near one of your preserves. I don't know where it is exactly. It's in Alexander. Andrea Bay. And I said, what road? And she told me. And I said, does it have a billboard on it? And I think she said, no, it's next to the one with the billboard. I said, don't list it. We'll buy it. <laughs> of course, I wasn't yeah. president. But uh, what it was, it was like the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle in the Otter Creek Preserve. Oh, yeah. And of course, I knew the tax maps at least in that area. And I called up our president and executive director immediately. I said, give her a call. It's coming on the market tomorrow. And just buy the asking price, which wasn't a lot of money. But that gave us basically a parking lot for an entry for the preserves. And another one, a realtor came to me the day before we had a board meeting. He said, Ken, I got a piece coming up on Grindstone. I said, where is it? He said, I can't tell you, but it's a nice piece of waterfront. It's 400 feet of waterfront and it's an acre. Well, if you know anything about area, if you have 400 feet on one side, it has to be 100 feet deep roughly to get uh, one acre. The acre is 46,000 square feet roughly. So I'm thinking of Grindstone Island. Where is there a piece of land? Yeah, there aren't many like that. Yeah, that, that's 400 feet long and 100 feet wide. If you ever looked at a tax map, all these things, so this is a long sliver of waterfront. And there's only one piece on the island. And this is a piece that abuts Sylvia Schultz property. I brought it up at the board meeting. I said, this is coming on the market. One of our board members said, we have to tell the adjacent property owners they've been trying to buy that piece of property for 80 or 100 years. So it came on the market 
market the next day. This time I had the authority to buy it. <laughs> we put you know full offer down and got a purchase offer on it. And then we gave the purchase offer, transferred it, because these are transferable documents, <clears throat> to the immediate property owner, who then agreed to donate an easement on the parcel to restrict subdivision and development. So we protected that shoreline. They can build a boathouse someday if they wish, but it's not going to be cut up into four lots. That's another one where mm. we strike where the iron's hot. You know, when I first came on the board, there were no tilt treks. There were no member monies. There were no organized act Out activities to for, outreach for the public. to the public, which is a way of getting the public yeah. more involved in conservation and appreciating right. you know, natural beauty and the things that the land trust is about. Well, You've got to get the people out on the land. Yeah. Well, how and, that started. And that started... Yeah, it was. We had a winter board meeting at Carol Monroe's house in Vermont, and that was my uh, first board meeting. Was it? Yeah. And she had this wonderful house in the middle of the mountains in Vermont. And as I said before, we always met at somebody's home. But what we had been gravitating towards this was the board retreat meeting. Right. Having a retreat in March, the first week in March, used to be in New York City. Since we pay for it out of our pockets, it got to be a little pricey for what. Well, anyway, this one winter meeting, Carol offered her home in uh, Southern Vermont, Vermont, Southern in Vermont, Manchester. in. Um, near Manchester, Land Grove, I think it was. Mm -hmm, exactly. And I, I don't know where I got the idea from, but I put it together with the son of an old farm family, a guy named Hanley Rushell, who had an old school bus. And he used to like to take- Children's people. school bus. Children's school bus, right. And when I say an old school bus, it wasn't one of these big 30 passengers. This was more like what you see taking handicapped kids around. It was a tiny little yellow bus. And I think it was one seat per side. I went to the board and made a proposal that we start an official trek, or I came up with trek, T-R-E-K. That's a Afrikaans word. When the Boers in South Africa wanted to get away from the English, they all migrated to Moss, and that was the great trek. Otherwise, they moved. So we started calling it Member Mondays, and then it became Tilt Treks, because just the, it was euphonic. Well, you couldn't keep it on Mondays, and so. Well, yeah. You had to yeah. change it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Manley, who was a pretty quiet guy, but he loved to interact one-on-one -on -one with people. So we advertised this Member Monday trek. You had to be a member, which we never looked at too closely because they brought their cousins, sisters, and aunts. And I would tell uh, Susie Wood, who ran the office and who was a former board member, I'd say, you know, we only have room for 12. Well, next thing you know, we'd have 16 people. And we really had to cram them in the bus because my recollection, I think it was one seat on each side, yeah, maybe a two tour on of one grind. side. This is a tour of grindstone. Yeah, two, are, two on one side one on the other and there were like five rows only it's a tiny bus but one time we had like 18 or 20 and i didn't know what the hell to do 18 you have 18 people show up you can't say you can't go and we dock at somebody's private house phyllis schwartz and they had a good dock deep water her husband she and her husband come down and greet everybody and you'd pick raspberries and eat them as you walked up and everything's really homey and the bus is waiting there this tiny bus and it got so crowded this one time manly had to put planks across the seats and we had to load it by row like they do with airplanes so the first First three people would get in or four people then the next four and they put down another plank and god forbid if we ever had an accident then the next four and we would go across the island in this and i'd do a narration you know explaining what easements are what tilt is and i had a lot of direct one-on-one -on -one anecdotes with some of the people with whom i've dealt over the years so i had some really interesting <coughs> stories to tell and going around from farm to farm and there's a road that goes around the head of the island and i'd have to face backwards breathing the diesel fumes on an empty stomach 
And we would, what was nice though, we'd, we'd end up at Manley's house, which was a cabin in the middle of the woods on a wetland. And his wife would put out a spread of Lovely tea, lady. lemonade, and cookies. cookies. And I yeah. mean, it was just, it would blow people away. They were members forever, you know? We had some interesting times. One time, it was the road had washed out and the bus got stuck. We couldn't get the damn bus out of the near Sylvia's, where it takes that dip, mm -hmm. where there's a culvert now. And fortunately, a guy who worked for Bob Purcell comes along, Tim nails him with a tractor. So he hooks up the tractor to the bus, and we yank it out of the mud hole. Another time, we pull the bus into Manley's yard and get a thunderstorm. We can't get the bus out. The slight incline is on wet grass. So we had, had everybody get out of the bus and push the bus <laughs> up this hill. So it was always an experience when you went out on these. But then ultimately the bus died and we weren't able to really take people around anymore. And we had our stops. We'd stop at Sylvia's. She had just opened yes. a store in her sauna. She sells little embroidered stuff and things, crafts she makes over the winter. And in the, she's finished Descent. So we stopped using the bus and I figured well, we got to do something. By this time we had started an outreach program. We started to have kids activities at Zender Farm and canoe and kayak excursions and partnering with other land trusts to do moonlight kayaks and I had purchased my first vehicle on the island I purchased in 1994 I think it was which gave me access to the island it was an ATV the reason I didn't buy one earlier because it was only they only started developing four-wheelers before that it was three-wheelers and they were very dangerous one wheel in front two in back and to ride through the terrain that I have to go through to get you'd, out of my place you'd flip you'd, fl you'd flip it too easily so way too easily yeah so I had bought ATVs and then I had a very generous friend was a house guest and used to come up several times a year but they came up one year and in secrecy so as a surprise they bought a Kawasaki mule as a gift which is a four-wheel utility yeah, vehicle. A four-wheel UTV, they call them. And this was a single-seater. So bench, I had bench that. Seat, bench, bench seat. Bench seat, So you right. could take two or th right. three if you're friends, right? Yes, you're three people, and then you'd throw a couple in the back. And the Well, anyway, <laughs> after owning that for three or four years, I bought a two-bench seater, a bigger one. So we're still using the bus, right? So the bus dies. At I this said, point in time. At that point. Mm -hmm. I said, what the heck are we going to do? I hate to just stop this very popular activity. So I went to a few friends who had also purchased similar vehicles. Some were one bench seats, some were two. And we decided to call it a mule track. And then I had because hats up, made up for everybody. With uh, I downloaded a picture of a mule head. And I put mule drover. Of course, drovers are people who drive cattle. Play on words. They drive mules, drove mules. So I gave these hats out to these half dozen friends of mine who had these machines, well, that started out that year with the mule track. I think we probably had six or eight machines, and I don't know how many people, probably 20. And now we have, I think, 25 drivers, and we have close to 100 people on these tracks. And what we lost is the intimacy of the narration. Yeah, what the we intimacy of the children's school bus. And the children's school bus. <laughs> And, but also the narration, because I had a steady, I mean, I couldn't talk for a day because I talked steadily for hours because I had so many anecdotes dealing with these different families. But what we gained was we were able to take the ATVs and the mules and the other UTVs, Bobcats, Polaris Rangers, all these things. We were able to take them on the tilt trails because we have a lot of trails that I didn't mention on the island. Just that just go through wetlands, hay fields. Yeah. And informal trails. So informal good. trails, dirt trails. And they're absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Going through the fields. Going through the fields, yeah. And we make a stop at Sylvia 
it. So what we do now is we pick them up. Now we now it's a lot more organized. We have a tour boat from town, pick everybody up. All the mules are lined up at the public landing on Grindstone, and people get on their different mules and vehicles. I call them generically all mules, but they're not. As I said, mule is a proprietary name of Kawasaki. So we have about 30 of these, and I put out a, uh, an email calling all mules, give everybody the date, give them you know six weeks notice, and they all automatically come down to the landing, and some people take two, some take six. We never know how many are going to show up. What's happening now is a lot of people on the island are just joining to get in on the trip. So we have ATVs and kids. And so this whole mule train now, we take off, and then we stop at the schoolhouse, and one of our board members or somebody else will explain what the schoolhouse is, which is the Grindstone Island Research and Heritage Center, Center, which is doing, it's a restored one-room schoolhouse. The last? That's the last one-room schoolhouse to operate in New York State. And we, again, they, I'm on that board too, just got added. They work in very close cooperation with the town of Clayton, which yep. is wonderful. They own the schoolhouse and they keep it in good repair and they work very closely with the nonprofit, which has a scholarship fund. But they mostly record histories of the different families and people on the island and genealogies yep. and <clears throat> preserve the heritage of the island. So we'll stop there, give them a tour. Then we go to Sylvia's, which is a couple of miles away. It's a big, tell them, uh, Sylvia's farm, what was it? Yeah, Sylvia's farm, which I think you said it was 270 acres. Right, beautiful, it sits up on a high yeah, you go through a spectacular land that falls away to the south to Flynn Bay. Yeah, as you come over the rise where her house is, you get this commanding view of yeah, a yeah. huge bay called Flynn Bay, which is then, class one wetland, which is all protected by conservation right. easement. And the whole thing the now. stretch of river behind yeah. it, you know. And With Clayton in the background, yeah, the seaway yeah. in the background, and a wonderful old barn. And we stopped there, and I hope people buy a thing or two, but she talks about growing up on the island, and she likes to talk too, and she'll give maybe a half hour talk and answer questions. And So we leave there then, and we make a stop on some some easement property that the land trust had purchased and then sold for residential use to keep it on the tax rolls. But also the non-residential portion is grassland and is maintained as grassland. For the and birds. Then, yeah. Then we'll stop at a couple of historic houses very briefly. Historic in that they're odd. One of them is a squash court. You have this squash court in the middle of an island in the middle of nowhere. Sort of interesting. And then we stop at the public beach, the beach we opened to the public, Potter's Beach, where we just put a beautiful staircase in, donated by a local carpenter, Kevin. Garnsey, we had actually contracted with him to build it. And when it was done, we asked for the bill, and he said, I'm donating it. So he donated the whole damn thing. And we had a wonderful... Um, His family has a lot of ties to Grindstone. Yeah, it's an old... To yeah. the Grindstone. See, Grindstone was settled primarily... Well, a lot of... There were some French Canadians, but primarily Scots... Irish, who came over from Scotland, not from Northern Ireland, I think it came from Scotland. And the hamlet, which is nothing more than a church and a dance hall now and a house or two called Thurso, which is... There's a Thurso in Scotland. Thurso in Scotland, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'd stop at the beach. Then we go up down to the bridge that connects the foot with the rest of the island. And if it's dry, we'll go through a 130-acre hayfield that's groomed. I mean, that's hayfield for bobolinks and other types of bird. You can see almost anything there because it abuts a wetland and a woodland. And then we wind our way back up to a 600-acre easement property owned by Junie Augsbury, which is very beautiful because it's a hill going up. And then we wind up on one of the newest additions to the islands, and that's a vineyard and winery owned by uh, Mark and Maria Purcell, who let us come there, and they'll provide wine tasting, and we have lunch there. And then the people get back and get on their boat. It's institution now. I wanted to provoke you to talk about the parcel of land that was whose boundary, one of whose boundary corners was the wild asparagus patch. Oh, yeah. That's a great, that's yeah. a great story. It's one of my
my absolute favorite stories. Yeah. As I had mentioned earlier, there was a woman who was very instrumental in the formation of land trusts, who was a pediatric psychiatrist. Her name was Dr. Josephine Murray, and she lived in Boston and had a condo in an old Victorian house there and had a beautiful farm, I think, in Boxford or Boxton, Massachusetts. Boxford. Boxford that she left to another. I mean, one of those farms that you see on a calendar that you buy from an insurance company. I mean, just spectacular thing. Well, she owned this big farm on Grindstone. She loved the land, loved the land, but she was very, very eccentric and a very lovely woman, and she became a friend of mine. She sold off the big house. Where the Bolins lived. Where the Bolins lived, the, uh, the Bolins. And she sold off the big house to a woman who later became a tow board member. Her name is Joan, she's 90. But as it turned out, Josephine, Dr. Murray, had no interest in keeping the big house. The big house was owned by her aunt, Virginia, I gotta get the name straight, Virginia Murray Bacon. All right, remember Murray, old Scottish nobility, Lord Dunmore? She married Robert Lowe Bacon, who was the kind congressman from Long Island. I guess when Long Island had, when I say Long Island, I mean Nassau and Suffolk County, not Brooklyn, Queens. When Long Island had one congressional district, a very famous congressman. And she became a very famous hostess, both on Grindstone, this big mansion, and in Washington, D.C. And the house in Washington, D.C. was built in, I think, 1810, and it's near the White House. She, I think during the Eisenhower years, came into her own and was like a pearl mester in Washington in terms of Republican fundraising and stuff like that. And she had her own eccentricities. When she died, she left it to a foundation for, it's called the Dacor, D-A-C-O-R, Bacon House. You can look it up anywhere. Very historic house. John Marshall lived in it. And a lot of Supreme Court justices rented rooms there and so on over the years. They contacted me once about Mid-River Farm to straighten some things out because they had it screwed up. Anyway, Mrs. Bacon used to entertain grandly in her house and with a full set of staff. So Josephine rejected that whole type of lifestyle into which she was born and she lived in a shack that did not have a shower did have a toilet it was her father's study she took a shower her shower was in the river. Swim in the river yeah her father was a renowned psychiatrist who helped to found the harvard psychiatric clinic and developed the thematic apperception test the tat test harry murray well, he lived to be aged 95 or so josephine his only child never married he had a mistress and they wrote a book about that it's called love story told it's boring but he kept the mistress separate from the family they didn't know about it for years. Well, anyway, Josephine grew up. She was pretty eccentric, very generous woman. And she sold the house, the big house, to Joan Rickert, who grew up on another island. Joan is born into the family that started Phelps Dodge Copper Mines. This house was filled with Victorian antiques. I mean, just chock full, late Victorian stuff, big rooms. Joan Rickert, who's a very dear friend of mine, is a minimalist. She lives a very simple life, very Spartan life. And she just took everything and called this pretty prominent antique dealer who lived, who had a shop in Matter of fact, I was so prominent, he had the Order of Canada, which is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. So he came in and bought everything lock, stock, and barrel. For some reason, Josephine got furious because Joan had sold the bed on which Charles Bolin, the famous diplomat, was born. And she carried on and carried on to the point where Joan had to go to the antique dealer, buy the bed back, and give it to Josephine. I think a piano was involved somewhere there, too. Well, this does fit into the story. Josephine had been on our board for nine years, and then she got off the board. And she relates to me that she's going to sell part of her property, Mid-River Farm. The part she wants to sell, well, you have to picture starting at one end of the Mid-River Farm is a farmhouse, is a barn. Then there's Josephine's uncle's house, cottage, pretty cottage, three-bedroom, called Le Rocher, probably built in 
in the late 20s, early 30s. Then there's the Great House, built by the Bolins. Then there's a vast empty space of hayfields and waterfront. And then there's the shack where her father lived and where she lived after her father's death. When she sold the Great House, she wouldn't sell to own any land with it. She sold her the house, a sliver of land, minimal and minimal, minimal, and the tennis court that's next adjacent to it. That's all she sold. So Joan essentially had no backyard. Well, Josephine tells me she's going to sell Le Rocher, which is her aunt's house. Remember, there's farmhouse, Le Rocher, and so on. So I say to Josephine, who was a benefactor of the land trust and early board member, and I, I might add also a friend of mine, and I said to her, well, Josephine, let me give you something to think about. You put an easement on your farm, and the land trust wants to take care of the farm, and the hay fields should be mowed, and if there are no cattle, nobody's going to mow them. So let me, let me give you the thought. I don't want to put myself in your wallet but you probably don't need the money. And what I think I'd like you to consider is give the land trust Le Rocher. We'll sell it to Joan, her neighbor. We'll get more money than you could ever get because I'm a better negotiator than you are. It'll take you off the tax rolls, which you like to hear, and we'll use the money to endow the easement so that we can always keep it for grassland migratory birds. She looks at me and she says, where do you get these ideas? Now, what'll I do with the beds? And I said, beds? She says, yes, there are a lot of good beds in that house. I understand she never said yes or no. No. She said, what will I do with the beds? So I said, oh, I don't know. She says, I know what. I'm going to call up Mike Mall tonight. Well, Mike Mall was a fellow who had married into Joan Rickard's family, then got a divorce, which is okay. And Josephine let him live in one of her houses, which was on the next estate that she had bought as well. But he lived in this one that was the squash court. A very intriguing. It's called the squash, <laughs> but it was a squash court. I mean, can you imagine having a squash court in the middle of the St. Lawrence River? Well, anyway, she says, I'm going to call Mike Mall, with whom she had a very close relationship. Younger man, they cared for each other greatly. And I said, you're going to ask Mike whether you should donate the house to the land trust? Oh, no. I'm going to ask him whether he needs the beds or not. They have all sorts of company at the squash court, and he might be able to use the beds. So she never said yes. She never said no. All she did was fixate on the beds. So I assumed that was a yes. So I just said, okay, I'll have a deed drawn up. So I have the deed drawn up. She had Le Rocher surveyed out already. So it was a fairly easy thing to do. I didn't have to order a survey for the land trust. All I had to do was, you know, issue a deed, provide the survey. Well, I take a look at the property, and sure, it's surveyed. What the surveyor did was this rectangular box, legal lot. I didn't mention the contour of the shoreline, but next to it is like a 14-foot strip of shoreline, 14 feet wide. That's 250 feet long, or 100 feet long, you know, 150 feet long. I call up the surveyor, and I said, Daryl, I'm calling about Josephine Murray's survey. Didn't you know that you cut this rectangular house parcel out and left the peninsula that's 15 feet by about 150 feet? long on the shoreline? He says, no. When Dr. Murray had me survey it out, along with some other parcels, no hawkers, her father's house, she told me she didn't want me to make a site visit, and she just wanted me to do as cheaply as I could. So I did it in my office. I said, well, you left this finger sticking out of shoreline. That's totally unusable. So I had a pack up, and I went to Boston, drew a map for Josephine, and said, look, you're still going to be stuck with all this waterfront property you're going to have to pay taxes on. It's totally unusable because it's only 80 to 100 feet wide. So I think you ought to give it some more thought, and maybe what I suggest you do is just donate all the land that is west of the old cattle fence. You're looking at a picture here of the barn. You could see a fence, and there are apple trees in the photograph. So it's from the fence over to the main house. And she said, no, 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 no. I don't want to get rid of that much property. Irma Slate, a neighbor, picks the apples, and she puts a vegetable garden in there. I said, well, you can't leave this silly peninsula of land on one side of Le Rocher sticking out. So you should just draw a straight line 
across the property somehow that will go with Le Rocher. And she said, well, all right, how about from the burning barrel, it was a burning barrel there, to the wild asparagus patch. Well, I had no idea what the wild asparagus patch is. But at this point, I'm on the ropes, you know, and I'm ready to agree to anything. And I said, okay. So that gave this straight line, continued out to both shores from the burning barrel, which I had a flag so the surveyors could come over and do a, an actual sighting. And then I had to find this wild asparagus patch, which I did with Joan and Fred, who bought the property, and we have it in the stake and put a flag on it. And that became the parcel from the burning barrel to the wild asparagus patch. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and conversation with Ken Didi, as told to Ted Mascott. Our sincere thanks to Ted, WPBS, and the Northern New York Community Foundation for capturing this interview reflecting on Ken's important life. You may listen to this interview and others as part of our Northern New York Community Podcast Series, which is produced in partnership with WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. Every podcast is easily accessible and always free, either online at www.nnycpodcast.com or on your mobile device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. We hope you'll join us again, and thank you for listening to the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.